Hello and welcome to episode 308 of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 16th of January 2020. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. And taking a sip, Marsh Davies. That's me. Was it a good sip? It was a pretty good sip. Actually, this is really nice. Sorry, Tom. It's quite all right. My stomach hates me at the moment, so I can't have the delicious booze. That means you can be our kind of blind trial for whatever. <laughs> I'm the control expert. <laughs> yeah, you can tell us when to stop. Yeah. <laughs> or choose to let things no, get No, I can let things go as they will. Yeah, yeah your control hot take, <laughs> Tom Senior. Hello. I feel so welcomed. <laughs> Good. So we're back. It's January. Mm. <laughs> Let's have a noise to see how we feel about that. We've had one from Marsh. Mm. Uh. Oh, Good. Yeah. All the noises, all the January noises. Mm. And that seems to be the uh, collective noise of the entire games industry at the moment, which has produced nothing but that single non-committal sound. No real releases this year in January, which is weird because I thought we'd killed this sort of cyclical game release thing where everything bunched up just before Christmas and then there was a fallow period. And then the industry changed and suddenly things slipped past Christmas and then people were trying to get into the, into the January, February slot. And nothing seems to have, mm. nothing seems to have landed there this year. It's which normally is really February, weird. right? That things show up, I suppose. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. But it, they, they haven't. I did do my little cursory, got a podcast coming up, browse of the Steam new releases mm. and that it was surfacing some of the things it was surfacing is either a damning indictment of my algorithm or of the paucity of things in general. Because it was <laughs> like, do you want to play Unity Asset Store, uh, counter-strike uh postal murderer uh gary's mod five mm-hmm. and the answer was yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, no I, I didn't and I, I didn't and i haven't mm. is there any news you want to discuss before we move on to what we've been talking about there's sort of there's been delays to certain games that we were looking forward to otherwise cyberpunk's been delayed from april to september mm. it's been shunted out of that early year yeah um springtime into late year games come out time <laughs> yeah that's actually i mean it's probably not for this reason but that is smack bang in the middle of a good time to release a game if you want a bunch of awards that's a thing oh is that right yeah because people have played it recently by the time those awards are kind of coming together right mm. i mean yeah. i suspect it's probably still within memory done all right anyway but be coming out right when the new consoles are mm. it's gonna be interesting if it's an exclusively last your current gen even mm. now might get a little bit squashed by uh the rush of new exclusives that are presumably lined up for launch hmm. unless this is one of those reasons for that delay mm. hypothetically one thing i thought was heartening from looking at the tweet was that the response seemed largely supportive which is nice uh, i have some recent personal experience of announcing we're well, not actually announcing a delay in that case just simply announcing a release date that was reasonably far away or a release window at least and uh i think it's nice that uh i don't know don't know if you can group together any kind of group of people on twitter particularly but gamers on twitter who i'm excited about a game mm-hmm. uh we're mostly responding with you know uh done when it's done don't burn yourselves out type messages which is nice for that yeah. to be trending as a sentiment hmm. like something's clearly kind of you know penetrated in that way the notion that de- you know even the, the notion that developers can burn themselves out and struggle mm-hmm. to get something over the line doesn't seem like something that you'd expect every commenter to really grasp even no. five years ago. I'm surprised that has actually, that message has even percolated though to the, the kind of people who are usually angry about release dates who don't strike me as necessarily <laughs> the people who have the grasp, you know, real rational grasp on the machinations of the industry. I don't know. I don't know what that means. I'm suspicious of it. 
<laughs> well, I mean, it's 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 just like the weather, right? Like it will change, but mm-hmm. for the time being, we have sort of like clement, yeah, conditions in which to give bad news to the internet. Let's talk about games that do exist and have been played, even if they didn't come out this year. Marsh, would you like to take us on a journey into your own experience of computer and or video? I can. In fact, I can take you games into another realm, the realm of Zen. Ooh. Ooh. Because I've been playing Black Mesa, mm. which was sort of released at the end of last year as, uh, at least it reached its uh, beta complete stage. And now it's sort of launched again as part of its full early access release. And then I guess it will launch again as part of its definitely complete now 100% release phase mm. prior to presumably post-launch releases. <laughs> Releasing games has become very complicated business now. It's a, it's a remake of a game that you may know as Half-Life. Mm. It is, it's been in the making for roughly the same amount of time that Half-Life 2 has been out, which is 16 years. Uh, what they wanted to do is they took the Half-Life 2 engine and decided to basically up Half-Life 1, uh, using the latest graphics, etc. I think it was originally two separate projects and then got merged. But it's been through a lot of different iterations. I think it's been, it has been released previously as a standalone thing outside of Steam, but uh, it wasn't. It doesn't have. It didn't then have the entire set of levels that the original Half Life did because they've been building it basically f- from chapter one then forward slowly right. uh, across time. It's been made by a group of semi-professionals or either professionals who are moonlighting on this project. Mm. I don't know if having gone into early access, some of them became full time, but it's, um, uh, it, they're called the Crowbar Collect- Collective and it's now actually a paid for product on Steam. Like mm. it was originally free. Um, and I played it, um, in 2015 when it had just entered early access on Steam. So it's been in early access by itself for quite a long time. <laughs> Almost five years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, in, that, in that time, they've have, uh, and so when it entered early access, it had everything in it bar the final chapters of Half-Life, which take place in this sort of uh, alien nether realm called Zen. Um, and I think they've also added some stuff to one of the, 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 mm. the final, I'm sure they've done other things to the, to those, those sequence of chapters as well, while it's been in early access. Um, and in 2015, I really, uh, I, I really liked it. Um, and it did this weird thing for me because obviously if it's it's a game that you loved playing back in the day you know I mean, i'm sure you've experienced this as as game journalists where you've um you remember a game from your childhood and then through some reason for writing a retro gaming feature or something you go back and look at the screenshots and this world that you'd you'd fleshed out so perfectly and your child brain is just these really drab fucking you know shitty gray colors and browns i remember the, the most striking example of this is syndicate which i remember as being mm. this amazing cyberpunk cityscape and then <laughs> so i looked at it in like uh, in 2017 i was like oh fucking hell <laughs> how did i how did i get anything from these this these images um but what crowbar collective's efforts amounted to was sort of uh sort of validated my my imagination right. of, right, of that yeah. earlier game because it had it had filled in all the details which my mind had back then but had now done so with real pixels um and you know i, I think beyond that i think you know regardless of the the, the nostalgia that i feel for that game and whether this this sort of allowed me to re-feel those feelings again. I think it does, uh, the original Half-Life does stand up incredibly well. Like there's lots of really good things to recommend it. 
um, particularly the early sections of the game, which are the ones I've played most because, you mm-hmm. know, when replaying game, I don't always get through it, but I've replayed those early sections where you enter the, the Black Mesa complex, um, a lot. And, um, one of the things I really like about Half-Life, and it was really unusual at the time, is that although it's this sci-fi, you know, schlock story about aliens invading and you enter this, you know, military laboratory, which have mm. all, has all these high powered lasers and doohickeys that penetrate different dimensions and things. It's still a really credible workspace, you know, <laughs> and you, you go through these offices and they feel really mundane. Mm. And that's something that's so charming about the game. And then what by juxtaposition with its horror is so compelling about mm. it in, in, in that you feel like these places are, are places that are familiar to you that you've worked, you know, with their, their whiteboards with, you know, not dicks drawn on them, but, you know, equivalent graffiti and, you know, stacks of paper and coffee cups and, yes, toilets and things like this. And if you think about the games that preceded that, you know, Quake and Doom and Marathon and Halo and Wolfenstein, just, you know, they weren't really lived spaces. No. Uh, maybe Goldeneye to some extent, but even if you, that. If you lived on a Soviet missile base. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they didn't feel like credible, you know, familiar mm. places and there's common places if you work that has that many trains mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, stockholm's got a very good public transport system uh, but i think that's and like the i mean the half-life series has always been very good at industrial grunge in general like there's mm. no there's no better uh, a concrete carbuncle than in, in the half-life games um and just you know just even like a a, a shitty boxy concrete room with a ladder going up is is rendered in a kind of level of credibility in those mm. games which i think is missing from others um but beyond, and, and obviously just just being able to kind of up-res those graphics and in fact expand the plausibility of those spaces with other offices and you know m- conversations between scientists that weren't done in the in the first game um i think that does a lot to to service that fantasy and 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 that alone is is a major benefit of this sort of remake mm. But on top of that, I think that the, those opening sequence of levels are really mechanically well judged. Like the the combat is uh, just the combination of foes you face is is really nicely balanced. Mm. Uh, just it's like a, a you know a, a classic combat conundrum where you have you know an enemy which fires a barrage at you from long range, like the bull squids do, and then you have. Uh, the Vortigaunts who, who do this powerful zap at you, but it has a kind of wind up. So you have time to dodge behind things and time. Mm. And, and then you've got the kind of shambling monsters who are slow and not much of a threat. But then if you concentrate too much on the, the range monsters, they'll surround you and you're in trouble. And that, that interplay of those different enemies, uh, in those kind of claustrophobic spaces is, is really brilliant. And it flips between essentially no combat, uh, basically a horror, horror game. Where you're walking around a deserted, destroyed space, and in really intense, you know, moments of action, and 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 that those those balance of elements is is really, really good, and it's remarkably remarkably good. Because, well, it's markedly good rather because the later sections of the game I don't think hold up as well. When you're fighting um, soldiers, mm. uh, human soldiers. And although the AI is, uh, you know, which was lauded at the time, still seems to be doing reasonably smart things in terms of flanking you, everybody has hit scan weapons. And 
there's not really any kind of cover dynamic and you there's no sprint in this like half-life 2 introduced a sprint which had a which could be exhausted and that added an element to combat where you you knew how long you were able to run for mm. and, and, and that created a new kind of tactical dimension whereas in this you sprint continuously and so it's sort of like it's very stripped back you aren't you're just sort of like sopping up bullets as you as you race around mm. and there's not really that much kind of as as much tactical thinking as you would expect in a in a shooter of a kind of modern game and so those those sections feel weaker and there's more and more um sort of set pieces that just don't don't quite match up to the standard you might expect today you know where you're using some environmental solution to what uh what might otherwise be a combat puzzle mm. um and those two things like that, the, the bespoke, uh, interactions don't quite mesh as well as, as, you know, today's CODs or whatever, I suppose. So I went back to this, um, thinking I was going to play Zen, but, uh, hadn't, hadn't unlocked the Zen chapter. So I actually had to play the preceding one in order to unlock Zen, mm. um, which is, uh, service tension, which I believe was, um, you, you might remember it as the, the sequence where you basically emerge from the, lambda complex whatever and you're on the side of a mesa yeah looking down into a valley and there's a helicopter that's sort of like chasing you around this escarpment um uh, and the chapter apparently has since i played it in 2015 been added to uh like there was a popular mod back in the day what day that was i don't know during these past 16 years um called surface tension uncut and a lot of that content has been added to it um and i think that's probably for the worse like, I don't really remember how I responded to um, Surface Tension when I played it in 2015, let alone how I responded to it originally. Mm. But uh, it does contain my least favorite parts of Half-Life, which are uh, a laser tripwire-ridden warehouse, which is just like you burn out your auto-load key really quickly. Mm. And a terrible section with backflipping uh, assassins. Until you mentioned this the other day, I'd forgotten about the ninjas. And I'd be interested, like, the straw poll of, like, <laughs> who forgot about the ninjas yeah, in Half-Life? I completely forgot about the ninjas. <laughs> I remember the soldiers, but not the ninjas. Do you remember, yeah. like, the, the women in, like, the, like, skin-tight cat suits? That, no, like, they look they like... They do not feel like they should they be look in that like, game. They actually look exactly like Warhammer 40k assassins. I, I forgot Weird. which Whichever one is the woman in the kind of, like, scuba yeah, suit with the ponytail. They look like that, basically. Yeah, there's lots of weird things with uh, up-resing the art style, mm. which then better highlight the dissonances that existed in the, probably in the original game, mm. but also definitely between the two games, it in Half-Life 2. Because the original game's art direction was, I, I don't know that it was uh, all driven by w one man, but certainly the monster design was contributed heavily to by a guy called Chuck Jones. Um who uh, left the company, I think, before Half-Life 2. And Half-Life 2 has the much kind of obvious fingerprints of another artist called Ted Backman. And they have very, very different styles. So Chuck Jones's style is, here's a monster. It's going to be uh, a 10-foot-tall cyclops with crab hands that fire lasers, which is a school of design I'm totally down with. Yeah. But also it's quite different from Ted Backman, which is sort of like... Uh, body horror and unheimlich mm. and you know things with tendrils that force themselves down your throat as you suffocate quite a different sort of style yeah. here's a huge larvae and it's wearing a stapler <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but then 
by up-resing the original Half-Life and using some of the models from Half-Life 2 and the sounds, like they brought the zombies back from Half-Life 2 to the original Half-Life 1. And the zombies from Half-Life 2 are horrible. They're terrifying things. And the noises that people make as these mm. parasites have bored out their face, basically, is really deeply disgusting. And at the same time, you've got these zombies next to the fucking gargs with their crab hands and lasers. And this is like, this, and these aren't, these aren't from the same world. Mm. And I feel the same way about the, the assassins. Like, I, I don't know what cartoon that's from, but it's no, it's, 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 it's a little too sexy for the rest of the Half-Life <laughs> 1 it, well, world. It feels like, I mean, the, you know, Quake is the classic example of like 19 FPS, 90s FPS designs. Mm. Like, well, what is the theme? Like, what's a theme? Like, I want to make a space <laughs> game. I want to make a medieval game. I want to make the most metal thing I can. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's happy. And like, I feel like there was one guy at Valve who's like, Ninja Warehouse. Sexy 90s comic book X-Force Ninja Warehouse. Yeah. And uh, uh, this is the hill I die <laughs> on. Or the warehouse I die in. And, um, you know, but that didn't yeah. survive the era of real strong art direction. No, well... I mean, I think it could have done... if Because the original Half-Life still has a lot of funny moments in it, mm. which play up that kind of almost Doctor Who-ish monster design. Like, you know, uh, a scientist will be sucked into a vent and there'll be terrible crunching and screams. And then a bunch of gibbs will fly out, including a perfect in- intact brain just by itself. <laughs> and, you know, that that's not something that would happen in Half-Life 2, really. No. It's like, the sort of, I guess you call it like the light kind of 2000 AD element of that game, I think. It's got that sort yeah. of kind of comic booky kind of grizzle. Yeah, I, 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 so there's that, that weird, um, sort of, uh, dissonance that it expresses. Now it's been, uh, graphically up but also I don't think mechanically a lot of the larger set pieces really work either. Like the Garg fights, which are the crab laser things. They're all environmental kills, mm. and uh, the path to that is usually quite torturous and rather boring, uh, I, I found on this playthrough. And I, I do vaguely remember that, mm. that being not not as appealing to me in the original, but um, it's it certainly stands out as something that just doesn't quite feel right now. And so, uh, so weirdly, I ended up going into Zen, which I was really excited about, having just sort of like had the worst part of my, of Half Life, uh, re-experiencing that. So I, I don't know if that was a bad way to jump back into Zen. I think they should probably make it so that you can just just drop back into Zen because nobody's mm. you know because you're not going to ask people to play through the entire game like they played through in installments across 16 years. Uh, just let them played before that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just just to play um, just to play the final few chapters. But um, so Zen was a part of Highfly that was never well loved. It had a lot of uh, um, jumping puzzles. Uh, mm. I think you probably remember. Uh, and it was generally thought of as being sort of a bum note on which to end. I didn't actually totally hate it as much as people, other people, but um, it doesn't have a great reputation. So not only have they, you know, given a graphical graphical upgrade, but they've also made an effort to change quite a lot of the things in, in very substantial ways, like the entire lay- layouts of levels and the way puzzles work and even boss fights and so forth. And it seems like it's a, a pretty much a, a complete rehaul. Um, and, uh, initially, it, it does look amazing. Like the you're in these uh, what's now become quite a, a cliche for these sort of other world spaces in games, where you have giant blocks of rock floating in a in a void, surrounded by a, in a vortex. And um, but it's it's beautiful. Like this, and, you know, they've really done a, a great job on in the environment art on the on those external sections. And there are some there's some really good uh, really good bits in it. The 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 jumping puzzles, the long jumping um, between floating rocks. 
seems to work, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really clear where you're going or why. You just got to jump to the next thing, which is the thing you can jump to. Um, and so there's there's a certain uh, there's a certain element where you feel like even there's no there's no logic that your player character in fiction is p- pursuing in order to progress and that that can be slightly discombobulating um but and there's also a nice little claust- claustrophobia w- w- bit where you end up in um uh, i don't know what you'd call them like a science tent um is that a good enough word for it sure scientists have been there and they set up a tent and you're inside it and it's a tent with lots of different rooms and there's scientists in there who've gone bad um, and it's spooky and, as in, and as in they're evil or they've gone off like, uh, like a overripe orange. Well, a little bit of both really. Well, you, <laughs> I mean, they've got head crabs on them. So oh, I, I mean, yeah, they've gone off, <laughs> <laughs> but it's otherwise a bit of a mess, I think, uh, which is mm. a shame for, for something that's taken this long to arrive. Like, uh, the jumping puzzles at the worst are, are, are sometimes excruciating, uh, because they don't make sense. I had to no clip a few times just to work out where I was meant to be going. Mm. It doesn't help that it's also quite buggy, but I assume those things will be fixed. And the enemies, the enemy designed, uh, it's not, it's just not, it's not something that interesting. You've got a lot of hound eyes who are these little dog things that run up to you and then peep uh really loudly in such a way that your vision goes funny uh and there's a new variant of them which explodes but i wondered if they were going to do that because i was thinking about this well so if you think about it fps design raced forward and basically tried to capture how to have a gunfight against ai be fun Mm. with mixed success some games got it some games didn't i don't want to derail your point no no i was thinking about alien design or like monster design and we didn't move past certain archetypes very much right like really describing yeah long range charge shot beam weapon Mm -hmm. guy still occurs everywhere Mm -hmm. um you know uh the uh barrage guy you have to wait for him to stop shooting still occurs yeah slow shambly zombie and uh, oh, thing. Explodey dog. Mm-hmm. Exploding dog is, is a thing, right? Whether it's a scuttly monster in Destiny or, or something else. Like, Destiny has two different variants of, of exploding dog. And I think at some point people decided, cause, uh, Hound Eyes, which are the first, well, not the first example of this, but like the half life <laughs> version of this yeah. is, they're the, they're, history's they're, first exploding dog. Yeah. <laughs> it, it actually just shouted at the time because, <laughs> um, uh, but the point is, right, like, the point design-wise is this is an enemy that gets to where you are and then gives you a chance to get away before it does its damaging thing. Yeah. Right? Like, unlike the zombie that hems you in, it runs at you and tries to flush you out of wherever you are, which is why the soldiers throw grenades and, yeah. and other things. That's fine. But um the there's something, maybe there's something rhythm-breaking about the fact that it charges up, it honks, you run, it chases you, it does it again, hmm. which was solved by having these enemies go up to you, yell, and then blow up removing them from the equation so they've done their job of flushing you out right mm. but they don't persist as another thing you've got to keep track of like zombies do mm. does that make sense i mean this is not a perfect science right there's always going to be gradations of it but i was thinking about it, it's like what happened to sonic dogs because trying to think of another <laughs> game that has the persisting exploding enemy which is what this is basically and i couldn't think of any because they all became mm. yell or like start to glow and then blow up enemies like from gears of war to halo has these like you know, it's it's all over the place. Yeah, uh, but do you like it? I, I actually think that the ex- the exploding dog is an inferior to the dog which does not simply explode but peeps. Um, I I think I would like people to revisit the the shouting dog. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. stands up to you. Hey, um, what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, it could what just... are you doing in my zen? Oi, oi, oi! Which is most most of what dogs are saying. As far as <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to have the the like 
horror game enemy that simply scared you. So it sneaks up on you and it goes, boo, which is essentially what hound eyes do. Mm. And then flushes you out by virtue of the fact that you're like, oh, shit. That'd be good. Yeah, I don't, I have to say, these, these little scuttling ones, I don't really, things that get under your reticle really quickly mm. are one of my least favorite things to fight just because you end up just spinning around looking at your feet. Yeah. And, uh, I, it's just, there's something about that which is, uh, which I mean, necessarily for the, for the tension it creates distracts you from the environment, but also games are about being sort of in the environment. Um, yeah. Uh, and that's the fun part for me, I think. No yeah. E3 FPS demo ever begins with someone exiting the tunnel or whatever and then looking down. No, exactly. <laughs> right. So there's, there's that, the, the, do you remember the Gonark? I do. How can you forget the Gonad Monarch? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I've forgotten. I've forgotten the Gonok. Had you? Yeah. How do you forget the two? It's like Dre. You can never forget about him. <laughs> <laughs> He's in my mind somewhere. I must suppress him. It, this is the testicle. Yes. Oh, just a straight up testicle. He's a four-legged testicle with a big cram shell on his back. And he's okay. huge and he hits you with his bollock. I think it's a she actually. Because <laughs> uh, mm. isn't it like the, yeah, isn't it like the mother of uh, head crabs? Yes. It has, yeah. I, I think it's gendered in the fiction in, in, uh. Um, they, they called it the gonark. Yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, be, it, yeah. Uh, it sort of spunks lots of, um, little, little baby head, uh, head crabs at you periodically as well, which is, uh, which is really gross. Uh, and so they've done a lot to that fight to kind of make it mechanically more modern. It's a, mm. it's a very grand multi-part fight with, uh, you know, incredibly cinematic set pieces. Um, and some, some of it doesn't work very well. I'm sure they will, they will fix the, some of those elements as it goes through the final stages of early access. But, um, it does go on a little bit long and, there's a thing where I don't know how they're going to, I don't think they will solve this where it flips sort of unknowably back and forth between, uh, a, an enemy which you can deal damage to with your weapons mm. and an enemy which you need to solve an environmental puzzle to progress to the next section. Um, uh, and I don't find that those two things really sit very well together. Um, you really sort of have to do one or the other or heavily signpost when it is mm. segueing from one to the other. Um, and as you, as you get through the Zen, you enter, you go from being these uh, epic external spaces and these kind of, uh, um, gribbly and internal caverns to, uh, actual alien structures, presumably built by the Vortigans. I don't fucking know. Um, but the, uh, the art design sort of just falls off a cliff at this point. And I don't remember enough about the original game to know whether they're relying on the originals art design for those sections or they have mm just not not done very well <laughs> sorry whoever did it um recreating them anew but it's not only are they just kind of unparsably alien spaces sometimes with m- mechanisms which you can't really perceive the logic behind thus you cannot really traverse them with any logic they i also just don't know what a lot of the textures are meant to be like sometimes you'll get into a vent and it'll be a really sharp edged you know rectangle cuboid rather and it's it looks like it's made out of tarpaulin and teeth and you're like well i don't it's but it's obviously metal because it's it's the structure of it doesn't in no way signpost that it should be organic and there's just lots of that it just looks like a real mess and there are very very long sections where you spend uh your time in an alien box factory uh (laughs) working your way up conveyor belt after conveyor belt and it outstays its welcome and then it outstays its welcome 
many, many times over. Really almost shockingly outstays its welcome to the point where you're going, you've got to be fucking kidding me. There's another <laughs> conveyor belt. I have to do the same thing. Um, yeah. Ah. And then it climaxes uh, with a really long elevator sequence that also it has no new mechanical tricks at the entire duration of your travel up it uh, where you're firing out of it basically uh, at enemies that float around. And then you finish with the, the famous um, baby brain Mm. Um, boss fight, which is better, I think, than the original, but still, it's you a, used to have to, not like, great. It's basically a anti, like, low grav basketball challenge, if I remember right. You had to, like, bounce up in the air and throw grenades into its brain. That no longer happens. Well, I mean, uh, that's how I remember that fight going. I don't think it's low gravity anymore. It's basically jump a, pads, a very multi, no, there's no jump, not like I found anyway, but it's a multi stage bullet hell almost, really. You're just right. running around it, trying to avoid its, barrage of you know whatever it is alien energies uh and then you shoot some lasers at the side then you shoot its brain and uh then you know that's it that's your half-life yeah uh yeah but i what i really want is for i really feel like i don't know how to feel about this because it's so (laughs) muddied by my uh by my desire for it to be good for from by my nostalgia from this weird semi-nostalgia that I have for the 2015 version of this game that I also played and liked. And I don't... I want somebody who has... I need a reality check from basically every different segment. I want somebody who's played the original Half-Life to play this afresh and tell me whether the original Half-Life was also shit now, basically. I want new players to... who've never played a Half-Life before, the younglings. I want them to play it and tell me whether this this is all just old fogey design that should have been left in the 1990s or whether it stands up and i want people who've played some weird interstitial version of it to, to also uh go through it and, t- and tell me what the fuck's going on because <laughs> it feels very, I, I, it feels very strange to me that is an incredible abdication of of, the, <laughs> <laughs> of like the take responsibility like <laughs> well i feel like some of it might be really bad but I don't know whether... It, but I just don't know who bears the responsibility yeah. for have, that. Has Half-Life changed review? Have, yes. Or have the, the modders not done it justice? I don't know. It mm. could be one or all of these things. Probably all of them. This is a, this is a pleasingly low-stakes crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And unless this is resolved, we will all die. That's <laughs> uh, well, true. Regardless, <laughs> really. Yeah. 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 Mm. So, uh, yeah, I don't <laughs> make of that what you will. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Starting off January. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any strong opinions, Tom, about anything? Um, I'm kind of curious to play it now. I've not, I've, I've, are you going to review it on PC Gamer? Um, good question. We probably should once it's a full release and everything and they're charging money for it. So, cause mm. I think you reviewed Black Mesa at some point. Yeah. But I, maybe when it was in early access, you reviewed it? Yeah, we certainly probably did. It rings a bell. I think I was working on the magazine at the time, which makes yeah. sense because it was 2015, right? I don't yeah. know if we put a score on it or not, but we, we would have certainly done a kind of early I access. I saw a thing. score in the late 80s, I think. It was like really? 89 okay. or something like that. I think, I think it was reviewed. I remember both a feature and maybe even a review. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll probably review it then. But who would you get to review it now? Would you get <laughs> a youngling or would you get an old haggard beasts such as yourself to um, slog through it probably an old haggard beast just because <laughs> you just need that i think you need that context of it's, yeah. it's such a strange project isn't it interesting to see what somebody without that context definitely would think yeah of? for sure maybe we'll do a little box out from like some right, here's the pitch teens react teens react <laughs> yeah so half life 
Um, yeah, I, th- I think there's so much context behind it that you kind of need someone who understands that a bit uh, mm. to go back into it. Um, and ideally, someone who's played loads of modern shooters should see if if they've modernised it or whether they've just kind of enhanced the kind of retro appeal mm. of it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing it. Um, I've, I haven't played Black Mesa yet, um, and it's been years and years since I played Half Life One, so it'd be interesting and kind of novelty. Such a strange thing to have modders come in and interpret an official game and Valve be cool with it and yeah. sort of let it happen. It's such an unusual unusual way to, to revive media. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I suppose Valve, obviously, if it's being sold on Steam, Valve profit from this being a success regardless. Yeah, sure. And it's probably they'll make more money from this than they would do if they'd spent years making it themselves, yeah, I'm going to guess. Yeah, that's true. So it's probably win-win, yeah. but you're right. Like, it is a strange sort of responsibility to take on for a team of modders because mm. it's going to carry the expectations of everyone who wants a version of half-life that reflects as you described their kind of yeah. memory of it right it's, it's, but it's also the timing of it is weird coming just before half-life alex right mm. it's like has the, has this in some way removed some of the nostalgia i have <laughs> for that series so that i'm not so heartbroken that i won't get to play a vr version of what should be half-life 3 but sort of is not maybe that's that, that's a hell of a game of 4D chess if that's where they're going. Yeah. With, like Valve. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't, I don't describe potentiality to it. I'm just saying. Yeah, it's weird. But also, I mean, we were talking. I think the last the last time we were on the pod, where we were saying that we're not as uh, enamoured with shooters as we once were, hmm. and I wonder if that's also like between 2015 and now, whether that has played a huge part in whether I enjoyed it as much or not. I don't know if it's even yeah. to do with the game because I look back at the the games I played in the last year and. I don't think I played really uh, any shooters uh, apart from Destiny, which I only played very briefly and didn't really enjoy. Maybe because because of that reason, like it just didn't grab me. Mm. Mm. So maybe I have changed, Chris. Mm. Half a life later, mm. that's the book you could write about this. If you could <laughs> 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 Get Alex to do it; it's fine. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Tom, how have your holiday video games been spent? They're good. Um, like you, I didn't play many games. I don't, uh, I don't think across the actual break itself. But mm. this week, I feel like I've gotten back into games. Oh, cool. Uh, getting excited about them again. Um, partly because the fourth character for Slay the Spire has been released. Um, yeah. The fourth, I think this is the final sort of big update for the game before they have a much well-earned rest. Um, but th- that means a new character with a new deck of cards, a new strategies, new ways to play and get to the end. Um I booted up Steam, uh, and the first thing I saw was in the achievements section, Tom Francis, who has already beaten the Spire with this character as of yesterday when the character was released. <laughs> uh, and only 1.8% of people who play the game have done that yet. Wow. <laughs> um, so that's, uh, I feel like I'm in competition with Tom now. Um, so the first playthrough I did with this, I did actually reach the final, final boss. And almost, almost got it, but didn't quite. Uh, so I didn't quite get to join the Tom Francis League so success so <laughs> did, did you tilt because you knew what was at stake I started to the heart started fluttering in the final boss fight I was like oh I could do this actually it'd be a good story to tell on the podcast I am, I am the Tom Francis now <laughs> <laughs> um, this character's really cool very weirdly complicated and I think perhaps a bit overpowered based on the fact that I reached the, the end despite not understanding the character at all and <laughs> my first encounter with the, with the character um, but she's a, a mage and uh, she works around stances and cards put you in certain stances and pull you out of stances, put you into other stances. Um, so, for example, Fury is a stance. I mean, it's weird to have the emotional state as a stance, but there you go. Um, Fury 
doubles all your outgoing damage and doubles all of your incoming damage. Um, mm. And then you've got something called calm, where uh, you calm the fuck down. <laughs> and uh, then when you come out of that stance, you get extra energy. Uh, so you use it as a kind of way of uh, cycling through your deck and playing loads more cards. Uh, and then there's one called divine, which you just do triple damage and you're just amazing. <laughs> the medium take. <laughs> yeah. um, so the marsh is achieved. <laughs> this creates a weird rhythm where... You want to get loads of card drawn. You want to get loads of energy to play as many cards as you want because you want to go into Fury, do do a few attacks at double damage, get the fuck out of Fury before the enemy gets their turn and they start attacking. Um, but the cards you get when you're furious, just doubling damage of cards in Slay the Spire is fucking enormous. Like, that is a mm. massive, massive boon. Especially when there's one... There's a card, for example, that where if you have no other attacks in your hand, it does 40 damage. But of course, if you, if you have Fury, you do 80 damage. And... In the context of Slay the Spire, that's enormous. That's a vast yeah. amount of damage. That's, that's like a boss enemy. killing. Yeah. yeah, right. That's a boss killing kind of attack. And it's something, a combo that you can set up quite easily with that character. Um, so I wonder if it'll end up being tuned down a bit in terms of the amount of damage output that you can do. Of course, there is that risk reward where if you're in Fury, you're taking that extra damage. But I found there are so many cards that get you out of Fury. And as long as you kind of make sure you've got enough energy to get out of Fury, then you're pretty much safe a lot of the time. Mm. Uh, just based on the one playthrough I've had. Um, but it's such a cool idea for a character and they've taken ages to make it. And what I love about the characters say this by each, each of them is just so conceptually different. He uses the cards to create different mechanics, uh, that separate them really well from each other. Um, I guess the silence is kind of similar to the first character who's just kind of a warrior, but they get loads of poison and stuff like that, which the warrior doesn't. Um, but then you've got the robot, which summons channels orbs that it can then throw at enemies and stuff like that. And this is a, a whole new, sort of card game entirely. Hmm. So four card games in one amazing deck building game. Um, and it's excellent. And it's such a generous update to just give to everyone for free as well. Hmm. I could have charged for it. Have you, um, have you found that that, I think, I think I remember Tom talking about it a little bit when it was, cause I think they put it out for testing at yeah. some point. Um, have you found the, that mechanic of having to switch back and well, switch, the, the bad scenario being getting caught in fury when your opponent yeah. plays? Do you find that, that mostly happens because you've made a mistake or because sometimes the game throws it that way in terms of the card draw? Cause it feels like it could be both and both have a interesting relationship with your own agency. Yeah. I found that like there are loads of cards that put you in straight into calm. Mm. So I, I've been using, I was using those to kind of end the fury sections and the, a lot of the best ones give you block as well as calm. Uh, so right. you can't fuck down and also put up some defenses as well. And that's like a good kind of, you, you get your hot half of the turn, and then your cold half of the turn when you sort of like bunker back down. Um, I think there's definitely could be a kind of RNG aspect to it where if you, if you're not getting those calm down cards, then you're going to die if you're in fury state all the time, because you just can't be taking double, double damage from mm. all enemy attacks. You just can't do it. Um, she's got like moderate amount of health, like fairly decent, but not like more than the other characters. So you still have to do a lot to protect her if you're going to be in fury a lot. Right, and I suppose if you see, if you know that your opponents aren't going to attack, then it lets you stay. Yes, you just let yeah. Those are really satisfying moments because you could just stay in Fury until the next turn, and then the next turn you get just get extra energy to play attack cards with it, double mm. damage, and it is really satisfying. It's really good. Uh, but yeah, it felt very strong to me, and I didn't really see like many different ways of playing the deck on my first playthrough with it. Maybe that more cards will because you unlock more cards as you play with the character, of course, so that will might open up like a melee build or something like that uh, the other characters are great because they have various different builds that you can pursue whether you want to mm. do a poison build with uh, the silence or you want to do like a kind of shiv build with the silent where you get loads of free daggers all the time like there are different types of characters that you can build opportunistically based on the cards that are offered up to you through rng um so it'd be interesting to see whether there are kind of subclasses you could make out of the watcher that um not discovered yet mm. 
but that will just require more play. I've only played through that one time. But yeah, definitely be spending... I've put like 64 hours into this game. It's a bit stupid. <laughs> so there'll probably be another 10 hours in it, I imagine. Mm. Um, and of course, there are loads of great, great mods out there, loads of different classes that you can mm. just add as well. What do you think they're going to do with it? Are they just going to leave it to the modding scene and eventually uh, it'll, it'll go quiet? Or do you think they'll pass on the development to another, I kind another of, group of people? They've, they've been really open about modding and like mm. letting modders just create entire classes for the game. Um, so I think they might just leave it to the community. Mm. Um They've worked really, really hard on it in terms of just the, the sheer rate of updates and uh, right. communication with the audience ever since ever since it entered early access has been just a crazy high pace. So I imagine they might want to rest after all that, but hopefully it's been incredibly successful for them. Oh, yeah, I think it has. I think right? it has, yeah, uh, deservedly so, because it's just a fantastic addictive deck-building game that is also very accessible. Deck-building games can be really overwhelming they can be yeah. really mm. daunting and so the spiral takes a lot of that out of it with it kind of mm. this cute art style and this these kind of bit by bit just fight by fight you build your deck and it's it's a much easier way of doing things than being bombarded with the entire an entire deck at once being asked to sort of put together a character which is what a lot of deck building games are trying to do mm. um yeah great great game one of the best games of last year I should probably play it at some point. Yes. You should. Yeah, I'm surprised. I've, actually, you know, you you live in a different country during the long Slay the Spire years <laughs> yeah. of this podcast. Yeah, so, about it. Yeah, yeah. I I bounced off in originally, or I refused to play it originally because the the art style. I mean, they were they were using fairly placeholder stuff originally, right? Have they improved that, or is is it? Uh, it's it's mixed. Oh, <laughs> I would say it's mixed. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can play it. It's become part of the charm <laughs> for me now. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Though I, I think you might, I think I'd, you should definitely play because I really want to hear what you think about the art style <laughs> and the various yeah. different monsters and the kind of uh, the kind of strange clash of styles that you get between the card art and the actual the monster art that's on the screen and that kind of stuff. It's all like a load, a load of different artists created it, even though they didn't. Do you just want me to be angry? I can, I mean, there's kind all of kinds of things bit. I can be angry about. It's very entertaining, time. but um, <laughs> yeah, it's a great game though. It's a really good, lovely game. Hmm. Also, been playing Pillars of Eternity too. How's that been going? Oh. Uh, it's basically I'm on a mission to um, finally complete an RPG one day of my life Hmm. remind me which one Pillars of Eternity is because there are a whole bunch of games that came out reasonably similar time with a similar-ish perspective that may have may not been RPGs or Diablo-ish games or multiplayer games I I don't know so which one was this so this is a single-player CRPG in the sort of Baldur's Gate 2 mold oh right Um, is it I mean is it in the Baldur's Gate universe, like um... it's not in the Forgotten Realms. It's in a, it's right. in a universe created by Obsidian, um, which is it's got its own rules and things, but it's still very much like elves and warriors, mm. sort of board that kind of stuff. Party uh, party RPG where you were you in that suspended perspective and you're gathering your party and venturing forth and all that, talking to lots of NPCs, getting into trouble. Um, it's, it's but it's, it's beautifully rendered. Like these days, you could do those isometric uh, perspectives with so much detail and color mm-hmm. that they're actually quite gorgeous um and obsidian use kind of little almost like interactive fiction skits to zoom in on specific things they can't show at that isometric level so it'll be like a sort of choose your own adventure to go and investigate this like a a crashed ship for example and then you'll come out of that and you might take certain amounts of damage based on the skill checks that you have to do um but then you'll sort of come back into the full perspective and back into the lovely beautiful world they've created which is an archipelago for this it's called dead fire um and it's just a series of islands full of pirates uh, and an enormous giant, I mean, the size of a skyscraper giant uh, made of magic soul crystal is just walking quite slowly across the archipelago and you have to chase it and reason with it 
and <laughs> figure out what it wants and talk to it and try and get your soul back because it's stolen part of your soul inside it. And that's a cool premise for, yeah. a, a, for a kind of D&D style fantasy campaign. Mm. Uh, I'm quite enjoying it. Have you found... Did you go back to it or had you not played it before? Uh, so I played a bunch of Pills of Eternity 1. Yeah, because I never finished Pills 1 because it was Same. a big, big game. It's huge. Uh, and I, I got Big Town Syndrome when I hit like one of the mega towns in it mm. uh, and then just stopped playing it forever. Yeah. Uh, so I decided to sort it. I'll just play two from scratch. I mean, you don't really need to play one. It gives you so much information about what happens in the first game at the very start um, that you can jump straight into two if you want to. And I think it's more accessible because... The islands just chunk up better. It's, it's more digestible than the enormous kind of open world, hmm. uh, mm. forgotten realm style that Pillars One had, where yeah. you you just kind of you were walking endlessly across screen to screen to screen. It felt absolutely vast. And when you went into, it's credit to them for for putting all, all of this detail in. But whenever you walk into a place, there are just so many fucking people to talk to, right. and so many like threads to latch onto. And that, that's great if you kind of have the patience for it. Uh, but increasingly I don't. <laughs> yeah, right. If you're happy with like, my play session is going to be exhausting this pub of flavor right. text. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one pub of 18 in this area. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially when you, you want to get those side quests, because uh, where a lot of the kind of most fun writing happens, because you know, it doesn't have to be as serious as the main quest does. So you get more entertaining mm. stuff and uh, fun prizes and good loot. Uh, but to actually dig that out. And I think this is actually a good thing. Like you have to kind of, get to know the people in the town and get to know the town and sort of crack it almost hmm. find, find out oh, what's going on here what's the kind of social hierarchy of the different groups here and uh, who are the smugglers who are the traders who are the who what the guilds etc etc and that's actually really engrossing if you've got an entire sunday afternoon <laughs> to dedicate right. to it yeah um but if you want to sit down for one hour <laughs> yeah you just kind of can't quite get enough done in an hour in these crpgs to actually for right. me to justify so if I've does got- it have like a, a little kind of combat puzzle element to it like divinity does where you can play it for 15 minutes and get through a battle uh yes in fact i'm playing uh in turn-based mode which is the thing they added after launch uh so normally it's a, a kind of uh real-time pause system uh, right. very similar to, uh, your Dungeons and Dragons games, like your Baldur's Gates 2s and that kind of stuff. Um, but turn-based, like you, it, as you'd expect, you just, based on initiative, alternate between the characters. Um, and what this allows you to do is actually play optimally with your party in a way that you can't in real-time pause, mm. or I find very difficult to mm. in real-time pause, uh, where all of your characters have so many different abilities they can shoot off and use that, uh, you have to like be pausing every half a second to, catch when someone's uh cooldown timer is reset in order to use a fireball again and that kind of stuff uh, whereas in turn-based you can't miss that because you've, you're given each character's complete capability and full time to utilize it uh with maximum efficiency because you're not going to accidentally miss the cooldown going off uh so in that way it's actually like it it works much better and you, you you're able to explore the nuances of the combat system uh in a much less confusing format even if the combats take about twice as long to resolve um mm. so it's that it's that it's that trade-off um Alternatively, you could just whack it down to like super easy and play it in real time. That might be a good way of doing it, to be honest. Um, but I do quite like these combat systems. So I like the interplay between wizards and uh, friendly fire and uh, warriors and berserkers and that kind of thing. And uh, you get some cool classes in the Pillars of Eternity universe, like I can't remember what they're called, the Cypher, mm. who um, just kind of raise people's minds and can show them things uh, in the middle of a fight. Or uh, I think they're like chanters i think there's an, a, this bard equivalent yeah. description which is really really interesting where they can sort of play bars of different things to affect 
friends and foe in different ways, which is really nice. Um, it's not, they, they take the kind of D and D base kind of shape and they add, they, they put their own sneaky twist on a lot of the different hmm. classes and ideas. Um, yeah, it's gorgeous. I'm really enjoying it. I just don't think I'm going to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How is it coming back to a CRPG of a more kind of traditional format having played Disco Elysium? Um, I, they just occupy completely different parts of my brain. It's really weird. Right. Like, mm. for, for, I, for me, Disco Elysium is um, an interactive fiction game more than anything. Mm. I just if it if there was nowhere to walk around, I wouldn't necessarily mind. I would play through that game just through the conversations and stuff. Right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, just because that's where all the value lies for me. Uh, though I do love the art style of Disco Elysium, mm. and, and I love the, what they've done with the world. Uh, it's it's a game about watching that text and just mm. being entertained by it. Whereas um, I'm all about picking up bottles. If you didn't oh, have yeah, uh, raiding well. bins for bottles, I've got I a, a plastic yeah. bag uh, <laughs> full of bottles at all times in that game, which is great. Um, I feel like such a I looks like such an idiot in that game. Like I, look, I, I went back and like on uh, chapter two or something, and just got like ridiculous hat on, stupid shades, plastic bag full of <laughs> full of bottles that I'm going to sell for like fifty p <laughs> yeah. later in the chapter. Uh, no, they, they, they're totally different. They're, I think having a party management, having a combat system, having trading, having all the kind of trappings of leveling up uh, right. in a traditional way makes it feel like a completely different genre to me. Like balancing mm. a party out and building them in a sort of Baldur's Gate style RPG is a different skill, it's a different sort of right. experience entirely to, yeah, yeah. to Disco Legion, which is kind of, you do level stuff up in Disco Legion and it is useful for giving you extra kind of uh, morale points and stuff like that. But really, it's about unlocking those combat, those um, mm. conversation options. It's about giving you the extra kind of choice to how to shape your character, mm. and I love it for that. But they're very different. Yeah, well, in Disco Elysium, it feels more about navigation in a way, mm. like the fact that it keeps track for you of what skill checks you can go back and try again, and what skills you need. Yeah, it's kind of testament to the fact that like it's about you level up because you value this. You know, you don't value in a lot of times, or at least in my experience, you don't level up because you are planning for the future in an open-ended way as you do an RPG. Like, mm. I'm going to put, you know, I've got a build in mind. You maybe have a, in in, in Disco Elysium, you have, like, uh, maybe a character in mind, and you also have, well, this check I really want to pass, so this point's going in empathy because I it, it's important to me from a narrative point of view that I succeed at this. Mm. And that's a very different motivation than I want my main character to be the wizard in this party in this particular way and mm. to eventually grow in this way because I'm going to fight a million different variants of goblin and this is how i'm going to handle that like yeah yeah your character's also just completely malleable in pairs of eternity mm. style games in a way that uh, your character almost talks back to you sometimes or surprises you a lot in this collision um or it gives you options that you can't necessarily quite control um whereas of course if you're playing the hero on a game of hero's journey in a sort of dungeon dragon style landscape you're basically going to say the the obvious thing in any given conversation. There's very mm. little room to say anything exciting or very different or mm. insulting. Uh, you can be you can be evil apparently, but um, I don't know what that really means in a lot of these RPGs. It just means you kind of addict to people, but you get the same stuff done in the end anyway. So <laughs> just charge extortionate rates, <laughs> just charge a bit more, make a bit more money, annoy some people. Um, but you're not going to, you know, very rarely do RPGs actually cash in and actually let you become a tyrant or something, and you know, in the mm. end, rather than saving the world. Um, I also, I had a bit of a break from games. Like I kept thinking I was going to spend my break playing different things and then not doing that. So, uh, I have subsequently since, despite liking the start of the season, bounced off destiny, which was a thing. Like mm. just, yeah, I had I this real big investment in the last season. Mm. It's just kind of gone away. Uh, interesting. I'll probably return. Mm. I think there's a, I have this, I have this weird feeling that a sequel's going to get announced this year, right. maybe even released this year. Mm. It just feels like that time. Could be an so I've got this, I've got this feeling like, oh, there's probably a reset coming. Maybe I won't bother. 
Um, I'm glad that it's doing well, so I like it. But anyway, um, I, uh, my long ongoing saga of not having played The Witcher 3 almost came to an end <laughs> when I reinstalled The Witcher 1 and then oh. didn't load it. <laughs> and then it's as close as I've yeah. gotten for years. Um, are you going to try and play? I'm going to try games? because my, one of my big guilt pleasures of Christmas was The Witcher TV series, hmm. which is, um, a friend said he agrees with everyone, everything everyone's ever said about it. And that's how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, right. It is trash and it's great. And yeah. it's, you know, it, I think it's it, like, I, I, I very much enjoyed it in a way that I wasn't expecting to, cause it's like, it's like Xena or I wasn't expect, I was expecting Game of Thrones pursuant kind of grim dark. And, but what I got was like, Henry Cavill's Merlin. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and yeah, I, yeah. I was actually 100% on board with I that. I really enjoyed it as well. Like, yeah. Um, and that made me want to play the games because I thought, ah, oh, man, like, I actually kind of enjoyed this and I, it reminded me of things I liked about the first game. Anyway, that saga didn't end. All I really did was play, um, Team Fight Tactics over and over again, um, for a long time. And I like it, but I don't really have anything to say about it. It's got, <laughs> like, it's, 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 um, I You've delivered have... a more new, neutral take than I managed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, um, but I have played and finished a game since and partly motivated by recommendations and also by the, the desire to have played a game that uh, I can talk about in this podcast. Uh, and that is uh, Sayonara Wild Hearts, mm. um, which came out last year on on consoles and Apple Arcade. And I think came out on PC relatively recently. I played it on PC, came out on Steam. Um, and so Sayonara Wild Hearts is a like album length rhythm uh, score attack game. It's by Simogo. I'm not sure what else they've, they've done. It's a, I think they're, uh, Swedish. I'm going to guess Scandinavian, certainly. Um, and it is a, so yeah, as I say, it's an hour long and it uh, is effectively best understood as an album. Like you play through a electro pop album through a series of levels, which gradually introduce and play with mechanics and perspective and things like that. Uh, and it's enormously stylishly presented. So, um, has a real sense of momentum and it's got this sort of, it's, it's hard to exactly pin down the art style, but it's, it's essentially sort of, because it's, it's sort of, it has a kind of neon, uh, you know, lots of purples and blues and pinks and, uh, sort of neon, slightly retro sort of thing. But crucially, it's not a Kavinsky. I've come to the, <laughs> That's a genre now right. of 80s throwback kind of, yeah. you know, neon cyberscapes and lots of synth. And it's not that. It feels much more modern than that. Um, you, and it's got this sort of, sort of faintly allegorical story about a, a heartbreak or maybe heartbreak in general that kind of exists on, you know, ostensibly two planes at once. You are a young woman who it's implied maybe works at a falafel shop and sits in her bedroom and has this dream. And in this dream, um, she is a sort of motorbiking, uh, air hostess wearing a domino mask, riding through a kind of cosmic tarot space heartbreak disco pop, uh, kind of, uh, psychosphere. Uh, it's good. And <laughs> you encounter gangs of rival similarly dressed bikers. Is this, I mean, is this set in Japan? No. The name suggested it is. It, yeah, it, it, so actually, well, I, I would say that, that I would say that like it has huge anime influences and things, right, but okay. it is you know it's not set anywhere really. It's in this sort of you enter cities, but they're sort of like 
they, they're representative of sort of like domains of the heart to some extent. You're writing some great cosmic imbalance, perhaps, but also dealing with your own heartache, maybe. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's music video logic, I would say. It's, it's like in this sort of, um, nothing I can do in explaining it is going to sound anything other than me over explaining it in a way because it sells itself visually it right. sells itself visually and it's music so you don't need to explain uh, music like it go beep and then it go boop and your heart goes hello like that's <laughs> that's how music works mm-hmm. like there's only a limited extent to which I can explain this you know verbally but basically it's it's, it's beautifully animated and very sort of striking um, visually and as it as a game and its fundamentals, the things that reminds me the most of are Res and Dyad. In fact, it directly references Res, hmm. I think, with a later mechanic. Um, and a little bit of Elite Beat Agents, although it doesn't have Elite Beat Agents' kind of daftness or, um, or, or indeed use of, um, licensed music. And so it's the way it kind of builds. And like I say, the game lasts an hour to play through every stage. And the thing that sells it is it establishes some basic mechanics early on, which is, moving around and gathering up hearts as you speed along when that mm. affects your score, etc. Very, very simple. Um, and it, but it's always changing and playing with its own basic systems. So sometimes you are moving, uh, left and right across a road, right? You know, road rash style. Sometimes you are moving around the inside of a, uh, cylinder. Sometimes you are moving in full 3d space. Sometimes you are moving around the outside of a cylinder and these things flow into each other completely seamlessly, um, with sort of in situ kind of camera angle changes and like sort of cutscenes or animations, very, very, very bespoke animations that are sort of folded into the thing. So again, it's got that kind of interactive music video sort of feel to it. And then it'll throw in other mechanics like, uh, timed button presses to the rhythm. You know, it is fairly straightforward rhythm game stuff. Uh, later sort of like a basic shooting mechanic. And then later the sort of, what do you call it in a, any, uh, in res or in any other kind of usually Japanese sort of um, rail shooter where you can drag over enemies to target lots of them. And then you release all of your missiles, hmm. whatever that's called the Panzer Dragoon, um, you know, swipe and shoot. I don't know, like whatever that, <laughs> yeah. but you know exactly what I mean? Like all of these little mechanics from other games and references hmm. from other games kind of sort of come into it. There's some bullet hell elements in a particular sequence and all of it is in service of like a particular mood or a particular tone as you, and they fit the songs as you, fight through this like kind of dreamscape hmm. kind of thing w- would you listen to the music outside of the game i have a little bit um i like it I, I, it's it's not it didn't it hasn't like um it's, it's an interesting thing to listen to as an album actually because some of them are clearly like you know it has songs and lyrics and it lands on those moments sometimes and those are often the best levels and there's lots of interludes and things for shorter levels some of them some levels are very short and it's just like introduce a mechanic play with it and then it's gone again and it all builds somewhere and it does have it has a good line in um, building to a kind of, you know, existential cosmic dance off, which is my favorite place to any game to end. Hmm. Um, and it's certainly like I've, I've had, um, I know people who, who love it to death and I can kind of see why, cause it feels like the kind of thing that if, if it sort of resonated with you at the right time in your own life or, you, you know, whatever, it's sort of, it's deeply romantic. And I don't mean that in the sort of, it has a literal love story in it so much as it's, it's, uh, it wears its heart on its sleeve in a, in a huge way. It's about, you know, a young person experiencing heartbreak and this sort of mad imaginative response to it. Hmm. Um, which I found myself, I found myself disappointed that I didn't profoundly relate. <laughs> and this is, this is, this is the time me having changed or gotten older. Like, and that not, not to be too like heavy on that, but like 
there's like I could f- I could literally feel the hot take crossroad opening up in front of me, and one path, which is the path I've chosen to take, is I really admire how they've done it, and I completely understand why people love it, hmm. and I just know that I'm in a different place in my own life that this particular piece of artistry or hmm. art isn't something that resonates tremendously powerful with me personally, but I think it's very well achieved. I think the other direction that me, a man in his thirties could take with this is a think piece about how I have changed and how I no longer relate to the young. That is the other thing I could do with this. And I just don't want to, mm. <laughs> like, I, I refuse to let it initiate through no fault of its own, a sort of crisis in me. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I don't trust everyone with it <laughs> um the um um but it is beautiful and it, it's it was nice to play something that sort of um i think i admire any game that can exhaust all of the mechanics it wants to play with in the space of an hour and take you through them mm. and introduce them at the right times and they feel nice and and like i you, say you are constructing the music as you play it through the actions of play sort of that's one thing i wanted to talk about so uh, when it introduces these mechanics and things they absolutely will fall on the beat mm. you know like um and, but when I say that it's constantly full of bespoke stuff, like every, every part of it is different. Every level is different. And the changes in perspective and even what you're doing can be kind of wild. Like there is a level that introduces a car and a drift mechanic that isn't present anywhere else. And you are drifting a car down a desert highway for a bit. Like it is that massive in terms mm-hmm. of shift. And it like, that's why I say it, like it gets through all of its ideas and then it leaves. Um, which is nice. Um, and that stuff tends to fall on the beat and to some extent picking up the, um, picking up the collectibles and things that, that boost your score. Uh, they are also in traditional rhythm game style placed on the beat. And so they will contribute to the music in some way, but it is not actually like res or a lot of rhythm games in that you are constructing the music. The music is happening anyway, uh, because it is a pre-recorded album actually with, you know, that you can listen to that doesn't require someone to be picking up the hearts in order to fill out like the melody. Right. Um, it will just be there. You, you offer accents and things and it all kind of comes together if you're playing it well. Um, but actually, and this is actually the start of my criticisms of it. You aren't really essential hmm. for it to kind of feel out. Instead, you're kind of there for the ride and I think for the spectacle. And like I say, it is full of, there's just so many, every, everything about it feels very bespoke. Like there's, um, there is, there is no section really. There are sections you re- return to that are th- similar to each other, but, it's clear that every single part of it is handmade and hand animated and, um, you know, whether that's sudden changes in perspective. So you go from riding a motorbike to having a sword fight on the back of your motorbike or between motorbikes to, um, suddenly you're in the first person riding through a forest fighting a mecha wolf, like to all of these different things that you're doing. Mm. There's some really lovely ideas that I haven't seen in a game like this before, like, um, uh, How does the mecha wolf stack up alongside the exploding dogs and peeping dogs? Uh, it's actually interesting because it does fire bombs at you, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't blow up itself unless you uh, punch it. Is it technically a sonic dog, though, being inside a... Um... Interestingly, yeah, probably. It is being um, ridden by a gang of hot teens. Yeah. Um, that is a new addition. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, that's who you're kind of dealing with. It's like a kind right. of tarot-style deck of kind of like cosmic love antagonists um i think if you don't want to know anything about it maybe skip ahead a little bit but i do want to explain one thing i think it does do which is cool that i haven't seen before a lot of it is like feels like pulling mechanics from stuff that you know you have seen but there's a good level which is about a good sequence which is about this character who is either a twin or is is a the single person in two bodies basically and there's a level where um 
you're flying, you're racing along and they're flying either side of you or ahead of you. And they clap to the beat. And every time they clap, you enter a different dimension. And there are two tracks that you're racing on over the top of each other. And you move between those dimensions when they clap. So you have, but your, 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 your position in the road is the same, but your, the things ahead of you, where the power ups are, where the obstacles might be, all of that stuff changes on the beat. So you have to get used to knowing where you're going to be. Because rhythm games are all about looking ahead, right? Looking to where the next power up is and steering yourself based on that. Mm. This requires you to listen to what the rhythm is and where you're likely to be, what track you're likely to be in at what place. That sounds really good. That's very clever. It's one level, but it's very clever. Mm. And there's a lovely moment in that where you start clapping and you add a third beat to it. And when you clap, there's a third, third one. And it's really nice. It's just one of those nice, and that's a good, I think it's maybe some one of the best ideas in it. And it's, that alone is kind of worth it for the ride. And in fact, even having explained it, I don't think I spoiled it because it's just this parade of inventive moments that, like I say, it has um, replayability in that there are, you know, gold, silver and bronze um, ratings for every level. You unlock stuff by finishing them. There's some sort of metagame stuff that I haven't quite kind of cracked yet. Um, although I haven't felt like a profound need to go back and, and replay it. Although I've replayed a few things. It's narrated by Queen Latifah, which is cool. Um, Can you fail? Yes. And that's, this is one thing I want to talk about. Mm. Cause so if you, you, you don't have health, but you hit anything, you get hit by a projectile, anything. And that's, that's the fail state. And what it does is it rewinds you. So you get a kind of record scratch, like a, and you go back and the song continues and you'll go back a certain distance and your score takes a hit. And what this means effectively is the reason it has to be this way, I suspect is because the, like I say, you don't drive the music. You are riding to the music and so it can't let you move on to the next stage and have the music be out of sync with you hmm. so it has to rewind you and the music and put you back and so it's very simon all the rhythm action games are simon sezzy to some extent but this one's very simon sezzy because you you have to get it right in order to progress and i think this is it's a reasonable choice given i think it's a game that wants you to get through it, it doesn't want to punish you doesn't want to kick you back to the start of a level things like that um, you will get through it, but it can, I, 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 I really, it can really kill the vibe when mm. you're constantly rewinding over a section of music simply because sometimes I don't think all of it's, I mean, a lot of it is pattern recognition, boss movement recognition, that kind of thing. Even if that's not what it's, uh, styled as, that is functionally, it's the same skill as learning the, 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 the tax sequence of a boss or something. Um, if you get stuck on something or you misread something a few times, it does like something of the momentum and the feeling of being in that moment and being sort of immersed in this kind of beautifully animated thing gets taken away as your brain has to kick in to go, okay, I have to learn this bit. Oh, I have to actually stay left for a bit longer than I think I do. And I keep making that mistake. Whereas I think the, the a part of me just wants to fail, lose some points, but be allowed to keep going and just stay with, stay in the moment. Mm. I worry. I wonder about the utility of failure in this, in a game like this, because even having the score, it's an interesting dynamic because I kind of want to go with it and just experience the album. I almost want it to be less of a game in some ways and just mm-hmm. let me kind of experience it rather than having that anxiety of like, I'm going to get to the end of this, but I'm definitely getting a bronze rating. Mm. Um, There's no other difficulty level apart from the, the ratings. Uh, not that I can see, no. Yeah. Uh, I think there's some other modes you can unlock as you go and things like that. Um, but, um, and even actually little things like um, you go back to the, mission menu between each level and they are very short and there are beautiful animations for unlocking the next thing and returning to the menu and it's all kind of you know again beautifully animated but part of me wanted given it's only an hour long part of me wanted to just play it from start to finish with no breaks 
Right. You know, just, you know, because it is, everything links into the next thing seamlessly, apart from the fact that you have to then press a button on the controller to get back in and continue. Mm. And those little things, like, I sort of feel it has a slightly, like, games that it is somewhat like, like, I would also mention Dyad, which not, a lot of people might remember, but Dyad is very similar in some ways. Um, Dyad, Res, games like this, um, they are score attack games first and foremost, and music is a sort of aesthetic reward for being good at them, right? Yeah, for sure. Like you can fudge your way through it and you not get it. And then the reward for really cracking the system and being able to see the patterns before they happen is like this euphoric sense of you're creating the music. Sayonara Wild Hearts doesn't do that. The music is there for you anyway. And all you can do is slightly ruin the experience of receiving <laughs> it. Right. And that is an interesting tension because I don't like, I think what that allows them to do is plan moments for you that other games can't do. You know, because it knows when you're going to get hit a big moment because it knows when the music's going to happen. And those can feel really nice. And like I say, the animation is beautiful. But I feel like that has a slightly awkward relationship with mm. um being a game, basically. Like part of me would have happily played it simply as a, um you know, an interactive music video or an interactive album length kind of music experience that you just sort of mm. glide through, essentially, without quite the same condition of uh failure. Um but yeah, um, it's, um, I did like it. And I think it's, uh, I think particularly cause it's on Apple Arcade. Like I'd be interested to see what it'd be like playing on a, like an iPad screen or something or like, or certainly like, cause it's such a audio visual thing that I really valued having it on a big PC monitor in front of me and being mm. able to kind of take it in. Um, but I would certainly recommend it. I think it is a, a, a like a lovely thing. Mm. Well, um, the iPad speakers like, surely that would change your yeah, experience. Yeah. I mean, it's a headphones thing. It's definitely a headphones right, thing. Right. Um, yeah. And like I say, it's got a good line in sort of, um, just uh, like, if you like wireframe tarot cards spinning to reveal cool, extremely cosplayable, um, <laughs> hot, like fifties ish teens in domino masks, then race you through a kind of mindscape to pop music. Then this is a specific game <laughs> about that. Yeah. Yeah. Now you've told me that I'll only ever be bad at it, though. <laughs> I, I may make. It I, I found that it's not so. it's not tremendously hard by any means. It's just occasionally you can like misread what it wants you to do in a moment, right. and even that for me was a bit of a sort of like, oh, okay, so, shit, sorry. It, it feels like I think at its worst it enters that thing of like if you ever have a stress dream about being in a band and you don't know any of the songs, <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> oh fuck, like. <laughs> <laughs> sorry sorry i thought i had to go around this tree but i've crashed into it just carry on doing what you're doing now. i'll keep up but yeah it's good hmm. did you play thumper i did what do you think of that i like thumper thumper's a bit a lot more of a it's a lot more in the sort of you create the music hmm. sense and it's also more designed to be punishing yeah like, in a both a difficulty way and in a sort of av way right like you're going to thumper to be thumped <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thumper, some thumping should have been the like tagline <laughs> for that game. <laughs> the <Yeah>. hardcore, <laughs> yeah, fucking like EDM Bambi game Thumper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, this isn't that. It's it wants like it is super gentle. It's, it's nice actually. That it is super gentle. Like I feel like there's a tendency for for music games to lean into kind of like you know, destroying your brain. And I, I've just sounded like the oldest man alive, but you know what I mean? To like overwhelm you. And then yeah. this feels more like a kind of, this is too loud. Can't we go somewhere where we can hear ourselves talk? Yeah. Oh Christ. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, this is it's not it's not gone full um like you know I, I don't know why we thought going to vodka revs for a last drink of the night was a good idea territory because it's much gentler than that. Um, I just think it must be it must be nice to be young. That's how it made me feel. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, shall we do some of those questions that come from questions? You love to see them. Yes. We love to see them. We love to hear them. Stuart writes, Dear McClunky and the House Hats, <laughs> do any of you know what happened to Star Citizen? It sounded like a massively ambitious game when it was first announced, but I haven't heard about it for the better part of five years. I assume it's in development hell. Feliz Navidad, Stuart. It's been massively, massively active development for the last five years and backers who have paid hundreds and hundreds of pounds for their ships mm. have been flying around in various betas and alphas and sort of bit by part releases. They've added planets, they've added landing, they've added all sorts of PvP combat. Mm. And they're still working on their single player component, Squadron 42, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's been, a, it's, it's been interesting. Developed. It has a sort of life beyond what you think of a game being out. Like it has like annual conventions that are now in their fifth year yeah. for a game that isn't, well, it is, it's playable, not done, you know? It's kind of interesting. Like I think it's probably the most stretched definition of when does a game come out because mm. people have been playing it now for almost half a decade. Um, but <laughs> it's definitely not done. But it is supporting a massive community of people who are really heavily invested, both financially and in terms of time and enthusiasm. So I don't know. I don't know what you call that. No. Like a live development experience. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. That's good. You know, it's kind of, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Like it is by all means, by all accounts, still rolling ahead and funding it's being funded or funding itself. And, mm. you know, like, don't know if it's hell necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> it's in like development yeah. bardo. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle writes, Dear Wizards of the Crate, you keep using this word, but I know not what it means. So my question is simple. What is gribble? How does one gribble? Why gribble? And whereupon does one grib? As ever, keep up the gribbliest pod, Kyle. So I feel like we use the word gribble more in Miniatures Monthly than in this podcast. Yeah, lots of little creatures to describe. Yeah, it's it's a word. Uh, maybe we should each say what gribble means to us. <laughs> I think it's, I, I heard Mark Commode using it. I think that's probably, really? I don't know if that's where I used it first or we just, hmm. our, our, our oh, yeah, definitions. I got of, it from you. I, like, I, I've always sort of thought. It feels like a word I would have already used. Yeah. It feels like an, a word I've used all my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't. What does Gribble mean to you, Marsh? Uh, sort of, uh, not quite disgusting and grotesque, I suppose. Mm. But also squalid and perhaps. Like a, a goblin is quite gribbly, but maybe not as gribbly as something more horrifying than a goblin. Like a, a zombie goblin would be very, very gribbly indeed. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's sort of, it, it doesn't mean gory. No. It's not, grota- it's not, um, you know, grisly. Grizzly mm. is the other mm. side of gribble. Yeah. Like mm. gribble is somewhere between yeah. grotesque and grisly and something with a B in it. Um, <laughs> 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 like, um, I would describe most all I think you would, a, a good resonant cosmic horror depiction of like a Lovecraftian monster like Cthulhu or something mm. probably wouldn't qualify as fully gribbly if it was sufficiently cosmic horror. However, the moment it becomes terrestrial and kind of passable. Fleshy. Fleshy. Mm. Then it is gribbly. Tumescent in some way, yeah. perhaps. Sort of rich in detail of a kind of non-specific way, mm. right? I don't think you can be, you can't be, you can't be perfectly smooth and be gribbly. No, you need buboes. Yeah, exactly. Calluses. But if I was to say agribble. 
I'd be referring to a small goblin-like creature. A cave. Agrible, yeah, right. Agrible, yeah. Agrible. Yeah, so, I think uh, Mark Commode uses it as a, as a plural to describe enemies which are, which have some of the qualities of, mm. Uh, stinky they'd, they'd smell bad mm. yeah. they'd be ugly disgusting in some way the creatures from the descent maybe that's the first time he ever used a descent I think he describes the creatures from the film isn't, the descent uh, isn't there a Gribbles. B movie about Gribbles <laughs> maybe I think there is um, like I think it is literally a, maybe even a reference to a particular film like it's it's and I think it's I think there's also an element of it has to be a sufficiently slightly generic form of monstrosity. Like you, you if you are a gribble, you can very easily be subsumed into a kind of mass of gribbles. Yeah. Without being really distinguishable from them. Does yeah. that make sense? It's like the word goon. You could have yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a group of goons. And I think it's been useful cinematically recently because most like Avengers or Justice League or whatever involve a certain amount of fighting kind of blurry, indistinct monster things, whether they're insectoid or, mm. you know, shadow men or, or robots or something like that. Things that can be smashed and punched and thrown away and that you don't need to see individually <laughs> to know that man is using his big punch or doing a laser. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. all of the uh, enemies in the first Avengers film that come out of the big warp hole they're yeah. all gribblies yeah all gribblies. I think all the Avengers I think all of the Marvel team of enemies are gribbles yeah like, Gen- generic hordes yeah of slightly manky creatures whereas the moment you get like uh, um, the specificity then hmm. it can be a creature with gribbliness but like I actually sort of disagree with the goblin analogy for that reason sometimes because hmm. I think they're often individually characterful yeah like I think yeah. I, I actually yeah, true. I was literally having this conversation in work today like I don't feel like you ever really need to explain goblin you know what you, you know what you're getting when you see a goblin you know what yeah. I mean like the gribbling gribbles wouldn't necessarily caper yeah no like well what, we watched gremlins recently and that's got an interesting relationship with this because there's a horde of them but they go to quite extreme lengths to kind of differentiate them like the one that's yeah. dressed up as a gangster's mole for no reason I wouldn't say they're gribbles no exactly but they have gribbly characteristics yeah right yeah. droopy ears kind of mm. lanky little limbs mm. spotty noses mm. etc right they, that's an example of what I'm talking about because gremlins are basically goblins yep can we agree yeah, yeah. like yeah. they are yeah they're you know um, like yeah they're fully you know they have the same sort of things they have they have I think to be a goblin you have to have dreams that's my yeah. thing you have to be aspiring to something you can never have whereas gremlins are kind of interesting in that relationship because they actually kind of get what they want mm. they're kind of like bullies they kind of do get what they want to some extent but they also right. get fed into food presses gribbles are more kind of anonymous really they yeah their like, needs and wants are not necessarily well considered by the fiction in which they reside right yeah exactly unlike a goblin yeah. <laughs> <laughs> goblin <laughs> Yeah, the richly described interior of the goblin well, mind. It's, it's why you've you've drawn so many goblin dicks in your life, and you've never drawn a gribble dick. That's true. Actually, I probably have. <laughs> I've drawn a lot of dicks, Chris. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I think we've, I think we've explored that. <laughs> sure. Uh, I can go on. Daniel writes. Uh, Ever since the launch of the Epic Game Store, there have been frequent negative posts about it on online forums, e.g., Reddit. If you've heard of that one. With topics ranging from business practices to the application, oh, sorry, to application security, to user experience, to support for the gaming customer, people online love to com- complain and tend to get stuck on certain topics, e.g., CG, CD Projekt Red, No Man's Sky, etc. But the regularity at which these posts appear and the strongly anti-epic stance they take has always felt a bit off. Do you think it's possible that the anti-epic sentiment online is an example of astroturfing by another group with a vested financial interest in PC gaming? Daniel in Iowa. I don't think this is an example 
of like international cyber war. Many no. things have been. I'm not sure this one is. Although, no, I'm not going to commit to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyone? Is this international cyber war? No, or is it no, people I are angry? So. I think no. it's just people who are, <laughs> are angry about it. I th- yeah, um, I think certain things. Because I know people yeah. who are angry about it and they, and they probably write things on forums and they aren't part of a sinister campaign started by, for example, the humble store. <laughs> uh, um, but I, I, I don't, I don't agree with them. I do feel like this is one of these topics that has sort of got run away from people mm. in a way. Well, like, like they've taken their stance and they're, they're not going to shift from it now. I think one of the most sort of persistent paradigms across the years is, uh, um, Whoever is, whoever are the good guys and the bad guys at any given moment in the games industry is fundamentally mimetic. Like once, once that's sort of established, people copy it, right? EA mm-hmm. are always bad. Um, you know, I, I think one of the reasons that this, the news about cyberpunk today was well received is because CD project in the eyes of players have cemented themselves for a very long time. And mm. as, as you know, the good guys in, in various different things. And that has interesting roots. Like that intersects with, uh, you know, um, negativity towards other developers right like hmm. and to some extent cd projects rise as the kind of rpg developer everyone flocks to was um uh, propelled by the meme hate of bioware right right and by extension ea which stems from everything from choices made in the dragon age series to the ending of mass effect 3 right it's all linked and it's, it's some great seesaw that companies ride up and down epic are um, you know, the bad guys to an extent, um, for reasons, some of which are rooted in, like you say, like the platform itself and different decisions they've made. And some of them, I think is just because the internet has its villains and its heroes at any given time. Mm. And one interesting thing about it though, which I think is a consistent thing. Um, if teenagers like something, a substantial portion of the audience, uh, may well turn against it. And I think the popularity of Fortnite has played into that somewhat. Like, I think that's right. a consistent factor across ta- time is to, to kind of mm. poo-poo and diminish whatever younger audiences are into, basically. Yeah, I I, I, I just, well, I, I think that does play a huge role, but I, I also just think it's, there's a, a mild inconvenience for people and that's enough. Mm-hmm. That's enough to mm. get people really angry. Mm. And there is a tribal element as well where people root for, for teams that are actually not, in fact, yeah. teams. <laughs> uh I think I've said this before in the pop, but also I think there's a, I think people underestimate the role that Steam played in making non-pirated games accessible to people across the world in a lot mm-hmm. of ways through sales and things like the, I think for people in our position, position of relative privilege, the kind of, you know, thanks Gaben kind of meme is like, it doesn't really mean much to you, but to a lot of people, that's like, it was a gateway to buying games that you wouldn't be able yeah, to afford. Sure, it wouldn't be distributed yeah. in your territory normally. And um, uh, when I can understand people getting protective like no i i don't think any game developer you speak to would be sort of angrily protective of valve's monopoly on digital distribution right yeah um and i think some developers got really blindsided by that when their players weren't happy for them that they had broken out from it with epic yeah yeah. you know when players were instead were furious because they had jumped away from Mm. the nice reliable place where the cheap games are to pursue a healthier relation healthier business for themselves elsewhere Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think also Epic's first moves at the store were to throw their money around and 
buy exclusives just mm. just nakedly just throw, giving money to developers to get them exclusively on the store for a year uh, which obviously makes sense from a business, business perspective but exclusivity is just not popular among PC gamers and I think as a first move for your store uh, mm. or the loudest move you're going to make initially uh, that is probably what put pe- people onto a bad footing with Epic from from the off with the store yeah. um, people are also right that it is just lacking features that Steam has that you'd expect uh, in, in terms of even just like telling you how long it's going to take for a game to download Mm-hmm. Um, or even be able to search your library properly or arrange it properly. Like it's just still lacking in features massively. So people are being asked to move to an inferior platform in many ways in order to play the games they want to play. And uh, I think people resent that lack of control over yeah. over their their library. Yeah, it is. It is annoying. I don't like. It's annoying, uh, but that's yeah. as far as it goes for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I can't be angry about it. I will go there to play Outer Wilds, basically. Mm. Interestingly, our next question is about that very game. Oh. Segway writes, Dear Crater and Corrupted Save File, Steeg here again. I've been playing Outer Wilds this week. I'm really enjoying it. It's exactly the mysterious exploration-focused experience that I adore. Lots of good vibes similar to Mist, The Norwood Suite, Abduction, The Witness, or Twinson's Odyssey. However, I experience a meta-challenge that makes the game more harrowing than designed. When the supernova kills me, the game will crash and the save file is corrupted. Not every time, maybe one out of three times. Nevertheless, I'm determined to play this game. The save game corruption is only replicated when the supernova occurs, and so I have taken to killing myself by any other means in order to control the fate of my save file. I fly into the sun. I leap into the void without a spacesuit. I crush myself. Any any fate is better than the supernova. I've also realised that I can at least I can at least back up the save file to the PS4's cloud, so I don't have to play this unconventional Iron Man run. Finally, the question. Have you found yourself playing with constraints not imposed by the game fiction and design itself, but the limitation, but by the limitations the software or hardware put upon you? This feels like a well-worn topic, perhaps one as old as PC gaming itself. Games, Steeg. That's a great story. Uh, like, I like, I love what that adds to, because it's interesting that that happens without a wild, mm. because, um, you can, you know, ultimately the knowledge that you need is in your head. Like your save is important to the extent that it updates the, you know, uh, data in your right. database. But you can play the game from scratch, right? Yeah. Like if I remembered enough, I could load up a new save file and finish it. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of a big loss, but it's also kind of not an ex- like, it's kind <laughs> yeah. of, you know, like they, they could actually release that as a mode. I think, <laughs> you know what I mean? You've got to remember what yeah. you have and haven't done. Like. Hmm. Like the mode where your ship isn't persistent, the, the ship database isn't persistent. I don't think this has really happened to me, though, that I can think of. No, really? Not that I can think of, no. Not, not in terms of, like, consistently walk, working around, like, an inevitable crash or something. Mm. Maybe. That's stuff with game controllers. Um, my uh, Nintendo Switch, for example, um, the left stick would only register a press left about half the time, mm. which makes uh, Mario Kart very interesting. Because you're kind of uh, inventing entirely new racing lines that involve turning left as little as possible <laughs> and uh, really powering up your boosts to turn right and then uh, just trying to hope for the best to go to the left turns. <laughs> you, you always lose. I'm pretty sure there was another game somewhere in the Unreal 1 era of games where uh, reflective surfaces caused the game to crash. So I, don't, I never managed to fully play it, but I, I did try playing it, averting my eyes <laughs> from uh, from anything that would... Uh, <laughs> That uh, would trigger it. 
but I don't, uh, yeah, don't remember what it was. Was it Sin, maybe, or something like that? <laughs> Sin, gosh, that takes me back. I remember in Diablo 2, um, we were playing on one of my friends on the old 50 k mm. modem. Uh, the priest would summon one particular sprite that would crash my game, and only my PC, it would hard lock my PC when it happened. And my friend, unfortunately, I wish I'd never fucking told him about it. <laughs> because everyone else was fine. It was just my game that would just crash out. So whenever he wanted to troll me, he'd just like summon this kind of spirit of winter and that <laughs> PC's hard locked. Like, Fuck you, Phil. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, those, these things don't really happen that much anymore, do they? No, Which is no, great. No, so actually, Red Dead Redemption, uh, I think people on the Discord forum will know this because I whined about it there, but mm. Red Dead Redemption crashed into a way that uh, my hard drive was making horrible grinding noises immediately afterwards. And it also claimed the game had wasn't installed thereafter. What? Which has never happened before. That's a bizarre one. Uh, and I had to, yeah, I had to re-download it. But, uh, yeah, these things don't, don't seem, these kind of problems don't, don't so, really Yeah, I think that's why it's not coming yeah. to mind. Like, yeah. I think I must have danced around something in the past, but it's really not coming to mind now. Yeah. Not for, yeah. In development games, yeah, it happens all the time. It's really <laughs> annoying. <laughs> but, yeah. Noel writes an email with the subject line, Best iPad games. He goes on to say, it's in the title. Cheers. Oh. Mm. Do you have any... I don't really play games on my iPad at all. Uh, I know that Apple Arcade has been enormously popular with people whom do. Mm. I, I love the room games. Mm, Those are absolutely before, yeah. gorgeous on iPad and mm. well worth... Uh, Playing on a touchscreen rather than on a PC, I would say, just because it's, it's a, these games about unlocking beautiful puzzle boxes. So that tactile sense of kind of moving little bits of wood around, turning keys, watching things open up is, is wonderful. Quite oh, serious. What's the name? Beautiful hand illustrated puzzle game set in Iran. Goragoa? Goragoa. Gotta, Goragoa play it <laughs> <laughs> on the iPad. Uh huh. It was good. I liked you, it. Gora. You really Gora. Yeah. In, the words, of, in the words of syllable. <laughs> <laughs> Silverblacks <laughs> Gora Goa. <laughs> Is there a, a, a river in in Tehran that has uh, a ferry across it? Could be the theme song. <laughs> anyway, Sean writes: Dear the charming and comfortably consistent Creating Crowbar casting crew, having completed my personal quest for 2019 to listen to all CNCs released from episode one. To the end of 2018, episode 267, I can't help but appreciate how far the podcast has come. Six years strong, successful patron. But at the same time, how much it has stayed exactly the same? <laughs> Format, tone, and just about, just the right amount of professionalism, which is presumably none. Yeah. Um, I appreciate the best ones are probably the hardest to remember. <laughs> but which were your favourite episodes across your long and storied history? Many thanks, Sean. Hmm. I actually uh, have a favourite anecdote from the uh, many things we've done, which is in the episode 114 called Toilet Punches Infinite Surrender. <laughs> and it is that titular uh, episode that is my favourite anecdote, which is delivered by Graham in his beautiful dulcet tones at the minute mark of 34 and 30 seconds. Um, and it's about Prison Architect and it's very good. Mm. A lot of toilet punching. God, we've done so many of these that, um, it's, yeah, I don't really think about this. I think, um, the, it's relatively recent. It was last year, I think. Um, Pip's 
uh, didn't there be a fox in there <laughs> oh, um, yeah, about this, the shard? <laughs> that was really and funny. Specifically, yeah. And specifically, and I kind of, it was one of those moments where I wish we recorded it because the way that physically broke Tom Francis, <laughs> um, who is a man who enjoys a joke, obviously, but like is rarely ruined by one. And it was a very rare sight of him, like absolutely like lost. Like it was very good. That <laughs> I think there's, there's also an episode, maybe semi-recently where Pip told, uh, told the ultimate joke. Uh, and it involves Tom Francis again. <laughs> Honestly, every time I think about it, I can't stop laughing. And it's, it's been one of those things where I've woken up in the middle of the night and thought about it and then woken up my fiance by laughing so hard. Uh, it's really good. Yeah. I can't remember what episode that's yeah, from. Yeah, we'll probably dig these out for, for show notes. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's a lot of, I think, I think maybe that's my favorite dynamic is the fact that, uh, Pip is the anti-Tom. Like, Tom is a man with, you know, many, many, uh, impressive talents and, and successes and, He's, yeah, apparently just mm-hmm. like she is his kryptonite, like <laughs> in some kind of thematic way. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, more broadly, um, I liked, I think the, it's, it's drifting into memory now, but the, the graveyard days yielded a lot of good, extremely drunk walks home. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, <laughs> you really have to get the phone light out for the long, long dark pathway up to that graveyard as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. It's good. You lost your glasses in a bush once, didn't oh, you? Oh, I did. That was a good one. I'd, I'd mentioned that. Um, was that a graveyard one? Probably. That was a graveyard one, yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of bushes, so I mean... Yeah, yeah I went, I was reason. walking up a big hill and I sat down to have a rest because I lived <laughs> at the top of one of the biggest hills in Bath and then um, misjudged it. But like about five, six seconds after I'd sat down, so it was not like the momentum of it carried me backwards. It was almost a sort of like subconscious decision to, <laughs> to sort of suplex myself into a bush. Uh, and then um, I came up and didn't have the glasses. I was like, fuck it. And then just walked up the hill. Uh, so yeah, those are gone forever. <laughs> I think outside of the podcast, in terms of stuff we've done, I love doing the uh, D and D podcasts because uh, I was literally crying with laughter. We're doing those; those, those are really loads. That of was yeah, that was great. And like, actually, we had a comment recently about the fact that we did promise a sequel and never delivered, and it's just it was partly time. And I think that's one thing that's been true recently is just not having mm. like everyone's availability line up. And also, like, I'm in the situation with a few different things now, a few different role playing things now, but that was such a good day and it's yes. a long day it we was recorded that for nine hours i think mm. and it oh took gosh. me easily double that to edit it because you know i did try and tr- i didn't trim any content but i did want to trim some rule stuff and looking things up and that kind of thing yeah, to right. kind of like get it listenable and it was such a huge amount of work and it it really paid off because everyone was so game for it and it was so much fun yeah but the, the notion of doing it again even though i wrote the sequel like what the campaign was going to be uh, is, is deeply intimidating because <laughs> yeah. it was such a good, like, but yeah, and I think you're right. That's one of them. Um, I really enjoyed all the live things we've done as well. I almost, uh, would you wish we'd think I enjoy the live things? I also, um, I would also give a shout out, um, to, um, the discord generally, but also I think specifically recently the role models community that's grown up yeah, around that, amazing, like yeah. for around minutes monthly, but it's very much an outgrowth of the quite incredible community. Mm. Cause that is like now like legit, probably one of the nicest miniatures and wargaming communities in the UK yeah. that is tangentially related to them, you yeah. know, to, to anything we've done to support it. But um, actually, given that lots of them are off to a Warhammer event this weekend. Yes, good luck. Good luck, gang. Hmm. We're going to place mid-table <laughs> to bottom, but, but that's the spirit of the thing. They'll be there in the T-shirts. Which I was at the, like a London Warhammer event last year and pe- people were all there in T-shirts and it was like, oh shit, like... This is nothing to do with me. This is just like a lovely group of people. So yeah, very pleased and proud of that as well. Cool people on our Discord. Um, can I have some more boost, Chris? Yeah, you can. Uh, as long as I get to make the nice popping sound. Mm, yes. 
Yeah, we, we could start an ASMR channel for men passing glasses to each other and opening <laughs> bottles. Wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. Ooh, Ooh. that's a good one. Hell yeah, it's like a cartoon bottle. <laughs> it's like you're getting drunk in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> David writes, Hi all, I've gone through my entire Christmas holiday without doing any gaming at all on my PC due to a busy dadding schedule. Uh, though I must confess to conv- covertly doing quite a few runs of One Deck Dungeon on my phone while putting my son to bed. I long to actually try out Bad North, Minute and Hollow Knight after seeing the icons taunting me every time I boot up my PC to do work. I've never really watched Let's Plays or Let's Play videos or streamers, but I think I might have to resort to doing some just to fit in some gaming. What games um, do you choose to watch? others play rather than playing yourself what sort of games require direct experience as a player and which are fine to just look at in my callow youth i watched my friend adrian play through all of resi 4 on my gamecube i never actually got around to playing myself but never felt myself shortchanged ah to be young again take care david so i don't really watch many streamers or youtubers myself but i do think horror games are a candidate for this yeah because you I, can offload yeah. the stress of playing them on someone else. Exactly. I, I find horror games too much because uh, I don't uh, like the trepidation that they place in me. In fact, I find it paralyzing, which is, in fact, the sort of anti-game experience. So being able to watch somebody play it and then close my eyes when they stretch their hand towards the door, which is obviously going to unleash gribblies, um, mm. that's, uh, that's the easiest way for me to do it. I tend to watch games that I can't play well and never will play well. So mm. I'll watch the Dota International, for example. Oh God, that's true, yeah. Uh, and I'll watch Evo fighting competitions. Uh, so I'll watch like professional fighting mm. contests because they have a level of skill that I will never reach. But it's still great to watch those games because they look amazing as well. Yeah. What about um, the games he mentions? I mean, I think Minute would be pointless to, mm. to watch. Yeah. And yeah. Hollow Knight as well. I mean, because a Minute, the, the, the pleasure of it is partly that experiencing the 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 looping nature of it mm. i don't think you can i feel like minute is to a lesser extent than um outer wilds or something like that but it is an information game yeah like we're current, current, coming to understand as a genre right like the game is over when you understand every aspect of it yeah and that is not a good viewing experience because their brain different to your brain mm. it's say different things to them than your brain say to you and it's so granular that those differences are going to be quite immediate and annoying because yeah. i mean every loop you have a different choice to make in like the first four seconds and if they're pursuing a different level different mm. path of investigation that's just going to be quite irritating hollow knight's an interesting one mm. for this because i don't think it'd be a great candidate to this because it's also very granular and about what you understand what your objectives are yeah. and what you're planning to do with a given kind of exploration however it has that exact thing and its structure in common with a game that is very good for this dark souls yeah we all have experience of that being a good thing to do half a game of (laughs) and (laughs) yeah exactly um and so and i think the reason for that and the reason it's different is souls or bloodborne um support like slapstick degrees of failure Hmm. and therefore the journey is kind of fun in and of itself in a way that hollow knight doesn't Hmm. I really like Hollow Knight as a game. Yeah. But there's, you know, the- Well, if you, your failure is that you just die and there's an instantaneous, like, fail yeah. screen, it's, it's very, it's not, not, there's not a, it's quite elastic levels of failure in, in Dark Souls and Bloodborne where, although you can be killed quite quickly, you, you seed your failure over a period of time, yeah, usually. You, it can yeah, descend so- into a total fuck show. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great to watch. It yeah, is, it's you know, really fun. right, like the, and, and it can be, you know, in your, and it's literally in your face. I think there's something removed about that. That 2d perspective or that metroidvania kind of styling mm-hmm. that keeps you 
ultimately like mm. it's not even that it's 2d or that it's side on it's that you're a tiny character in a big screen and you you know mm. you're not sort of really you're playing the screen not the character to some extent in those games and and that removes you from the peril you can fail to negotiate the navigation thing, but you don't tip over an edge or get, I don't know, bisected by a swinging blade in Sen's Fortress. Mm. And that's a big surprise. And it's a big whoopy shouty moment or something. You know? Yeah. Dark Souls and Bloodborne's bosses are much more extended as well than Hollow Knights. And that's where a lot of the kind of drama comes from. And mm. seeing people just sort of lose their freaking bean, uh, <laughs> trying to, trying to get one boss down in that. that Sometimes really you do four different YouTube videos about killing the, the, um, plus, <laughs> Bloodstuffed Beast. Bloodstuffed Beast, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we go back to our Dark Souls 1 playthrough and, um, uh, what they call the, the, the Kings of the Deep. Or oh, the, the Four Kings. Four Kings. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> More like See, four cough. Oh! Yeah, uh, 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 Rich Santon throw himself at that over and over again while Marsh watch, looks on is something worth watching, digging out of our YouTube channel. It's heavily edited down as well. <laughs> heavily edited. Still, still like, man, three. Three episodes long. Plenty, yeah. Actually, yeah, speaking of pod highlights, actually, I would put big chunks of the Bloodborne on. Yeah, as well. it's been, that yeah. was great. Finishing. Like, yeah. So, so Sorry, much, we didn't finish it. So much like mad stuff happened, like just hunt, enemy hunters glitching down ladders and falling off things. And there are so many ways that game to go wrong that I just don't remember it being like that the first time I played. No, played through it. But it I enjoyed good. doing the edits for those moments. As well. <laughs> yeah, or the the moment where you kicked a man in a wheelchair off a building. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that was very funny. Uh, there's a, I, I can't remember what they're called. Are they, are they other hunters? Is that the term? For yeah, them? the other hunters, yeah. There's a hunter that chases you around beneath where the hunter with a minigun is. Yeah, right. And he fall- comes a cropper yeah. in a surprising way yes, in your yeah. video. That's and it's, that still makes me piss myself laughing. It's, <laughs> it's great. really fun. Uh, yeah, piecing together what happened after the fact. It's like, what the hell? Man, I still got that save on my PS4. I don't want to make promises at this stage because no, of the way life is. But yeah. Uh, Tom writes, good evening, gentlemen. Life events have caused me to lose quality podcast time for a bit, but now I'm back and playing catch up. With that in mind, way back in episode 215, Chris mentioned a Star Wars reskin for XCOM 2, where you play as the Rebels. I thought it'd be, it would be fun. <laughs> well, that's quite a long time ago. Uh, I thought it'd be fun to also play as the Empire with more resources for a different playstyle. This seems to be a genius way of incorporating an easy mode and a hard mode within the narrative framework of a game. Has any game actually ever done something like this? I look forward to hearing your thoughts in two years. <laughs> Cheers, Tom. P.S. I heard Marsh is back. Yay! But I heard Tom F left. Boo! <laughs> any chance on that delicious blood porn let's play continuing? Oh, fuck. Oh, no. <laughs> yum, yum. <Called> out. <laughs> oh, man. Man from the past. I'm sorry about the future. But in two years' time, maybe you'll have finished it. Who knows? I, I, so I need to understand this is someone who's behind on the podcast, not literally in the past. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 2019 is shit. Don't, don't bother. Um, the, uh, I don't know if this was ever true, but it was thought that, um, the, the Babylonians were one of the hardest, uh, factions to face in Civ 2. Mm. And so if you played as them, you were essentially playing an easier version of the game because it took them out of one of the roster of opponents you'd have. Well, I was going to mention Grand Strategy as an example of this mm. because actually, like, any total war game or, or similar has a faction that starts in a more dominant position and naturally mm. creates this, right? Like uh, total warhammer mm. has this with chaos, which is the slow burn sort of existential threat to everybody else that arrives once every, you know, hundred turns to screw things up. If you play as anyone else, right? But if you play as them, you basically have nothing and you're responsible for trying to build that once every hundred turn attempt it's to end really the world. Hard. <laughs> and it's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard because no one likes you like at <laughs> all because you're the gribble men from 
the the North Pole, and you you're here to end the world. So there's not yeah. much diplomacy to be done about that because your objective is directly uh, opposed to anyone's who wishes there still to be a world, <laughs> which is <laughs> yeah. every other faction, regardless of whether they're skeletons or not. I mean, I'm sure there are other grand strategy games set in history, which... Oh, which, yeah, for sure. Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, obviously, easy- the historical Total War games have this as well, right? But there's right. always, like, you can, you know, um, I think Total War, Rome, uh, which was the one I played the most of, definitely had this, where hmm. playing as Rome in Rome was the de facto learn the game mode, right? Right. And then, you know, picking, uh, I mean, even picking something like... Gaul or Britannia or something. Mm-hmm. Was it Britannia in Rome? I can't mm-hmm. remember exactly. But, you know, the, or the Celts or something is like an exercise in trying to fend off the inevitable to the extent that if you manage to create a kind of Celtic empire that stretches across Northern Europe, mm-hmm. you feel like you've broken history a bit because it, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, it'd be an interesting mechanic for XCOM where there traditionally aren't loads of factions, right? Mm-hmm. It's you versus aliens. I mean, functionally what we're arguing for is XCOM where you can play as the aliens, which is an interesting yeah. idea. But maybe a really easy game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sam writes, Dear Kister und Bruchstanger. In a recent episode, Chris Thurston, that's you, Chris. Hi. Talked about the McClunky edit of A New Hope on Disney+. Plus. Mm. My brilliant wife heard me laughing my face off while listening to your description of the scene and Xmas gift me, gifted me the t-shirt attached to this email, which will be in the show notes. It's very good. I can't read the word without hearing it in Chris's voice. <laughs> and I laugh every time. This reminded me of my introduction to uh, the absurd as a child. Oh. Well, I this, I mean, this, this, this email takes some turns. Um, while watching the Fearless Freep episode of Bugs Bunny, in which Yosemite Sam is attempting to force Bugs to jump off a high dive into a small bucket of water... Wow. Wherein Sam ends up falling off the high dive every time. At one point, Mr. Yosemite encounters a door on the diving board. He bangs on the door, yelling, Open up that door! Open up that door! Then inexplicably, he turns directly to the camera, directly into my seven-year-old eyes, and asks, Notice I didn't say Richard? My mind was blown. Many years later, I would learn that this was a reference to the popular period song, Open Up the Door, Richard, which I have not heard. Wow. Uh, what fourth wall-breaking experiences have you had in video games or other popular media that caused you to question your grip on reality? <laughs> Thanks. Love the pods. In inverted commas, shite out, Sam. <laughs> What's that? Um, is it the GameCube game where you... It's like Cthulhu. Eternal Darkness. Yeah. That's a great game. That had some moments like that. That where, deserves a it? sequel that... Yours, yes, uh, it was good, Mark. No, no, no. What was, the, no, what was the fourth wall breaking part of it? it I don't it. remember. It would pretend to, it, you had an, an, sorry, Tommy, you were going to tell us, sorry. Yeah, you had a sanity bar and as it kind of went down, strange things was sort of happening. It would emulate oh, t- yeah. the volume going down on your television with UI that w- was very similar to CRT television at the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was lots of, I don't know if Chris, you can remember some more. Yeah, it, it would pretend to, uh, switch your TV off. Um, so you would then go and switch it off, right, try and switch yes. it on. Yeah. It would restart the GameCube and go back to the GameCube opening menu, but it hadn't actually. You would enter a new uh, room and everything would be upside down. Right, yes. Um, and all the controls would be inverted or something like that. Like, it, it, <laughs> it, it, it that game was so good. And mm, I can't, like, clever. it also had, like, a, like a really clever branching ending structure and stuff as well based on decisions you made. Like, it was, uh. you basically had to pick which elder god ate everybody. And there was one way of averting it all, but it meant really understanding how all of it fit together. That game was 
Ah, of all the things not to get a proper sequel or at least, yeah. or at least a re-release or just just to be ripped off by other games yeah it was great the structure oh. of it god imagine a because that that's that system would be perfect for a souls game mm-hmm. like the notion like imagine sanity instead of humanity mm. right yeah like awesome. where the consequence for letting it get low is just it starts really fucking with you that, yeah man. it's something i wish that bloodborne had done more with insight insight mm. oh god yeah well actually insight is a good example of this yeah thing. because it, it, some stuff does change but it's, I, I wish they kind of pushed that further and changed mm. even more things as Insight got, got stronger mm. than you. Yeah, the universal thing of Insight means you get to see a squid man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to think of we- fourth wall breaking that really blew my mind, but. I can't think of the blue my wife, but we and a weird, unexpected inheritor of, uh, of Eternal Darkness is fucking with you is a Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts, uh, which has a level in which you're inside. Uh, a console which is very similar to the Xbox 360 in which you're playing the game. Mm. And as you fuck around inside the console, uh, artifacts appear on the screen which are exactly the same as mm. the artifacts that appear when the Xbox 360 inevitably overheats because it had terrible thermal issues. <laughs> which is really a weird deep cut for yeah. Rare to make against the company that owns it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it, when I first played that, it really shat me up because I was like, oh fuck, another Xbox has died. <laughs> this is like my sixth one. That was a poorly made console. It was awful. Yeah. Bless it. The betrothed rights, they do actually have a name, but they didn't sign it with their name, so I don't know if I can call them by their name. Always go by whatever they describe themselves as. The betrothed writes, Dear Crunchy Nut Bar, you've been invited to a wedding and need to bring a date. Unfortunately, you don't have one. Luckily, your friend, who is a wizard, has offered <laughs> to summon any video game NPC who will be your date to the, for the event. So who do you ask them to summon to be your wedding date? Please keep in mind wedding date etiquette and societal expectations. Looking forward to seeing you on the big day. Sincerely, the betrothed. So hang on. Can, uh, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, but can we start with what the expectations are of <clears throat> your behavior at a wedding? Because you're being very get- obviously polygonal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> getting real drunk. Like, I mean, you know. Yeah, actually, mm. there's quite a wide space <laughs> for expected wedding behavior. Yeah. When my dad attended my sister's wedding, he got so drunk he forgot how taxis worked. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, my 21st birthday was also my best friend's big sister's wedding. I got so drunk, I passed out on the same hill twice, despite being <laughs> rescued from it twice. <laughs> <laughs> Just went back there like an elephant's graveyard, but for 21 year old me. Um, um, hmm. Let's think. I think Agent 47. You've already <laughs> got a very nice suit. I was going to suggest Agent 47 I as well. It'd be good. He'd be, be very quiet and yeah. give the appearance of being respectful to the, you know. I mean, he wouldn't be the there guests. to kill anybody, but he would certainly add a certain frisk on to jazz <laughs> up what are normally pretty boring events. Exactly right. Wow. Mm. <laughs> it's obvious answer. Well, I know who I'm bringing to you all. I would. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to meeting him. <laughs> I would bring the the bastion announcer to <laughs> nice. to describe everything i did <laughs> that's a good one yeah i like that like you know like he's going back to the minibar it's a bad idea but he already knows it <laughs> like that kind of thing you know yeah would this be audible to anybody but yourself i it might I overshadow the way I, I will stop caring about that either way very soon <laughs> hmm. you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> Chris Thurston really ruined this day for both the bride and the groom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. He says that they walk up, they are both crying. Yeah. People disagreed with them at the time, but this Cooler Shaker song was a banger. <laughs> <laughs> Miller writes, Dear Crow and Squirrel Bar, 
Recent discussion of a short hike reminded me what a great experience that was, especially as I was able to finish it in a single session. I find myself averse to games I know I won't be able to finish, like a 40-hour RPG. It's like Big Town anxiety before I even made the purchase. Have any of you overcome this anxiety, uh, potentially as the nature of your gaming time changes? And how? Or should I just play shorter games like a short hike? Thanks, Miller. P.S. Why do you still read your Twitter handles? You all seem to be off it. This whole email is an excuse for this P.S. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely don't know. Uh, do you know why? Because I can answer the last question. I don't have an answer to the previous one because I'm still trying it. to figure out myself. It's because I don't really know how to end the outro otherwise. Like, we've always had a problem with this. The fact is, we got to the end of episode one and you made a kind of warbling, thanks for listening, <laughs> honking, sort of desperate, please let us go sound that we've kept doing for the last seven years because we have no better reason way of knowing how to, like, end. Mm. it's like trying to hang up the phone. Like, if it wasn't Twitter handles, make a noise, switch off the recording, I think I would probably say something like, love you, bye. Or like... <laughs> well, I think it's good that we all... Exit the podcast verbally, individually, just to remind people that they've been listening to. Yeah, I suppose there's, there's, there's that. We could swap it for like reintroducing ourselves. Like if you, I've think- been Marsh Davis. <laughs> could we try that? We could try that. Let's for this try one. that. All right, yeah. yeah, let's do it. But the question, which, <laughs> yes, which was about how to gird yourself for a big game. I don't know. I wish I knew. Mm. Yeah, like my answer to this is I just genuinely have a problem with this now. Like it's a lot. It's a lot to play a big game. Hmm. Even for those of us who work in games and for whom this is a, to some extent, a professional endeavor. That's, is that bad for this medium? That said though, I also struggle to go to the cinema as much as I want and that's, or feel like I should to keep up on things and that's two hours a week, you know? Hmm. I'm surprised the games haven't reacted to this by, uh, there being more, uh, AAA games which are shorter. I guess it's probably mm. because triple, the AAA audience still has a sizable or, you know, predominant number of people who only play that game for that year and this, thus wants it to be, you know, maximum in terms of the number yeah. of hours it provides. But I can't imagine most gamers, as in people who play three plus games per year, really want that. Anymore mm. from those kinds you know, of experiences? Do you know what I think it is? Mm. And this is, I think it might be the absence of novelty. Because I was thinking about games I have finished recently, right? Like games that I felt spurred to finish, things like Disco Elysium or Art of Wilds. Mm. And it's because in each case it's like, oh shit, I haven't actually played anything like this. Therefore the, the reward for perseverance is actually really high, right? You're, yeah. you're digging deep through something, even if it's mechanically similar in some ways. I'm thinking of other games that I've invested a bunch of time into, but I haven't finished like Assassin's Creed Odyssey or, or things like that. And that's because I was enjoying a variant on an experience I've fundamentally or, or otherwise already had. Mm. Even if I'm digging into a CRPG, which is a genre that I love, I'm getting the comfort food of a new fantasy story. But I have, I have had as a human being the experience of playing a 200 hour fantasy RPG through to the end mm. and the satisfaction and things. And any other experience I have in that genre, no matter how different in the details, it's only ever going to be different in the details. Mm. Yeah. Right? Like, right, sure. and, and so, you, you know... You don't need another one of those. Like, yeah, limited space in my life. I don't know if, like... I'm, I'm facing this down with The Witcher. I feel like I missed something because people rave about the third one so much. But I kind of... I'm fighting against my sense that, oh, I've done this before. You know? I don't know. I think with that, it is almost fairly singular. I don't Which think that has I'm, been a Witcher 3. I think I don't think Witcher One and Witcher Two are adequate preparations for the for what is Witcher Three. Right, and I know Maybe. I should just I, don't know, I know I should, agree with that. Yeah, I know I should get over myself and not play the first two, but I can't. Yeah, you really should. 
<laughs> and the, mm. They're not very the, good. Yeah, the point of what I'm saying though is that like that. Does that make sense? That, that it's, mm. it's the fact that if something is sufficiently new, I'll probably invest any amount of time in it. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. increasingly rare. Holds true for me, especially given Death Stranding, which I beat and put like 70 hours into. Mm. Uh, and that was because like... Because uh, nobody's made a Strand game before. Exactly. <laughs> no, thanks, Kojima. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I enjoyed it and I'm glad I persevered with it. But I think you're right that the multi value of just walking around the place instead of, you know, the same combat system I've played hundreds of times before definitely is a factor. And if anything, the novelty value of having a story that is like impossible kind of <laughs> yeah. like gibberish totally yeah gibberish. I, I really unfortunately i really bounced off death running after a certain point yeah it's a real shame like i had my first real setback where like i lost all my stuff mm. i got beaten by some enemies oh, and, really annoying. Yeah. and it just killed my vibe in like mm. a real massive way mm. and that was a bit of a shame yeah i think it's worth persevering just to see the beautiful environments and mm. The, the further you go into it, the stronger you become, and those guys who chase you around become trivial after a while, and you get that sort of sense <laughs> now, of... Now, I am the biggest Norman Reedus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I want to be, I, I, I'd, I'd like to know how many people finish any of these games, though. I mean, you can sort of just get a, a sense of it from... Um... So my brain just went off on a thing. You can t- I'll, I'll say it in a sec. Okay. And I was just like, they, they could put out like a story mode or something for Death Stranding that took out a lot of the busy work of it to allow you to progress to see those environments and if they did they should call it the reader's digest <laughs> <laughs> excellent can we use it as a podcast title or is that going to spoil that it's going to spoil it isn't it we have to pick something else mm. <laughs> um, sorry my, uh, things are quiet in my head now like, continue. <laughs> but I, I was only going to say that i store on steam when i finished the story in red dead redemption that the number of people who had that achievement was so negligible i mm. can't even remember who it was it was like a it was either one percent or in the region of one percent which is you know pointless for the people who slaved making those late game missions you know what one was in a hundred people yeah yeah, I'm sure they, I'm sure people would have been satisfied, completely satisfied with a game which was 20 hours less, even. Mm-hmm. And it'd still be great for the reasons that it is good. Like the, the length of it isn't the reason that it's good. Right. Paddy writes, have you read any video game postmortems that explain well what happened during the course of game development? Have any of you been involved in writing one? Deus Ex and a few other classics have had some out there. These honest explanations can offer insights, but games still seem to repeat the same dev hell mistakes. Love the pod. Paddy from Dublin. (coughs) Have you written a a postmortem, either of you? I mean, I've written a lot of making of, so I can't remember if I've written a I've written a lot of making of, I haven't written a lot of postmortems. I mean, they're more or less the same thing, but there's a sort of different vibe. Yeah, yeah, because one of those were death. Yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. One of them, something's After gone terribly died wrong. Yeah. Is the... <laughs> yeah. There's loads of good uh, postmortems um, about Ion Storm and the the kind of clutch of developers that left that studio to make other things, and mm. the way that this, the kind of hubris of that studio and uh, what they wanted to do versus the culture they established and how it all went wrong. That's a, a good postmortem story. Mm. It is interesting how. Nobody seems to learn anything. <laughs> it's true, though, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, are, there isn't a shortage of this information out there. No. Um, Masters of Doom, that's supposed to be a really good book about uh, inside the development of Doom. But it's not post-mortem so much as... Uh, uh, Jason Trier's stuff is good on this. Yeah. Yes. A bunch. yes Blood, Sweat and Pixels is a good book. And his mm. stuff recently on Anthem was very good, I think. I thought on- He's fantastic. He's also become the go-to person for people to tell these stories to. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's sort of a, <laughs> it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, here's he is a very good... Uh, yeah, that's the distinction, right? Like, stuff. Um, I'm very uh, fair. Making, making of has a... Is, is, is marketing friendly in a way that, yes, yeah, um, post mortem isn't. Mm-hmm. And therefore making of makes 
uh, video game PRs go, yeah, okay, we'll help with that. Whereas I want to explain how you fucked this up is not necessarily like going to get the same, yeah. you know, I mean, access you did, I mean, without the kind of context that certain people have. Hmm. I mean, the Edge used to have making ofs every, every, um, issue and it was, there was a wide variety of, <laughs> input that you got from devs some were more candid than others about their past histories and you know you could find people who weren't part of the marketing machine any longer to comment on it but yeah you're right in general there is a sort of they are celebratory pieces rather than excavating you know ex ex excavating yes excavating thank you pieces Mm. Mm. i remember doing a big retrospective on rare it wasn't i don't think it was a particularly good piece but uh it was interesting how um just how open rare at that time was about how little science there was behind their dev efforts and uh, it probably relates to what an expensive studio they are to run <laughs> right. I, I think and uh it seems like they mostly design their games through sort of different little teams going off noodling away on some idea which isn't necessarily related to some like an overall game objective hmm. it could be that they just went away and thought about how to make C look nice right. and thus eventually see if thieves emerges from that yeah but it's a very chaotic and not it doesn't seem to be like a strategy hmm. like and it doesn't seem to be uh something that a company a big company would sign off on because <laughs> it's n- absolutely no guarantees attached to anything that they do <laughs> um, which is why i think for a period of time they were sidelined making xbox avatars perhaps and uh latterly it was really good to see them come back as sea of Th- yeah. with sea of thieves because that's a that's a real game you know yeah um i i wonder if just uh, enough time had passed or enough talent had moved in and out of the studio such that they were felt to be trusted with a, a real game project again mm. i don't really know the story behind that that's all mm. supposition that's a good but... one to chase actually the thought story this puts me in mind of is it's not so much a, a making of thing the 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 big most sort of substantial making of that era was about dragon age inquisition hmm. uh, which was a piece i liked writing and, and it was specifically about the writing and the construction of the writing of that game which i liked doing um but it was and i don't think it's made it into the piece um the ground zero for the worst thing that has ever happened to me in an interview i think oh my which is i mean because interviews are a nerve-wracking nightmare for everybody involved am i alone in that right like the the the, you know the fear of humiliating (laughs) yourself the terror of the other person it's uh it's a thing Mm. um what i meant to say to the i was having like a group interview with like the writer's room for dragon age and what i meant to say was or ask was something along the lines of do they feel a greater pressure writing a later game in that series now that they're aware of the fandom and the, the, the amount that these characters mean to specific people? And also the way that the malleability, this would be if I'd really unpacked the question, the way that the malleability of the player character in Bioware RPGs allows players to experiment with their own identity. Hmm. And particularly as that is expressed through romance options and things like that, as they continue to furnish more diverse options and things like that. Seems a reasonable question. They are allowing people to express themselves and to explore aspects of themselves through these games. But what, what do you I actually s- say? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> what I said was, um, do you feel additional pressure because people use these games to play with themselves? <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone laughed. And then giggled nervously 
And then I backtracked it and tried to fix it. And I don't want to relive this moment. <laughs> it's the reason I can't but go it, to Canada. But that was, <laughs> I mean, you, you asked the same question, though, more or less. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> more euphemistically than you intended, but yeah. essentially, yes. Uh, yeah, but no, I'm, I'll, I'll never go to Edmonton. Oh, I don't know. I'm so used to people being really angry at me in interviews. <laughs> Doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah, I've never been scared of an interview, actually. Really? I, I was initially, when I started, first started. No, I've, yeah. I've never minded it. Interviewed Jade Raymond really on early on in my career, and that was that was terrifying. Mm. And Gabe Newell, not long after that, I was also fucking terrified. Mm. But since then, like, I mean, I think those two broke me, and it was, it was fine. <laughs> I think one shouted at by Hideo Kojima, that's all right. <laughs> Hideo Kojima shouted at you? Uh, well, shouted at me via a translator, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Uh, I'm sure I've told this in the podcast before, but oh. I asked a really interesting question about how uh, Japanese developers were looking beyond the bounds of Japan because the market was too small in Japan to support the kind of AAA development that was now yeah. becoming so expensive. Um, and the answer I got back suggested that the question he'd been asked was, why are Japanese developers devoid of imagination? <laughs> or, or something really offensive. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah. But I... I mean, I just sat there and took it because it was via a translator. There's nothing I could have done. That would have killed me <laughs> to well, death. Yeah. yeah. My first experience interviewing people was um, was interning at the Birmingham Mail. And um, if you've ever been sent out on a Vox Pop, just to... That is... That's a hard crash into, <laughs> into bad times. When, uh, so basically, yeah. the Rugby World Cup is on. So just go and find X number of quotes about the Rugby World Cup. And you just go to city centre. You go, you go to people. Go, excuse me, excuse me, I'm from the Birmingham Mail. And then people just like, I've never been told to fuck off so much in my life. <laughs> and oh, just uh, wow, yeah. breaking that kind of um, the barrier of going up to a complete stranger and trying to engage them. Oh, uh, and then ever since then, video game interviews have seemed pretty fucking <laughs> tame, to be honest. Yeah, I can imagine people yeah. actually are there to be interviewed. To be interviewed. Yeah. And like for me, that's a fucking novelty. So I can't, like, I can't like, doorstop people. I've, I've sometimes been sent to conventions and saying, just get an interview. And I'm like, it's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can, but it's, it's not, I mean, the games industry doesn't work like that anyway. No, I just no. talk to PRs and it's fine. <laughs> no. Shall we move on to our final question? Yeah. Sure. Which is fittingly from Kane. Kane writes, ahoy! <laughs> Shit. Ah. <laughs> After some unfortunate delay, this year's CNC Community Goatee Game of the Year is now online. Hey. In this brutal gladiatorial contest between the best games of the year, only one will prevail and be able to proudly display their victory by pinning an oversized ribbon with a smug goat on it, on their lapel. Any member of the server can participate at this URL, which I'll put in the show notes, and voting will be open on February the 1st, so that everyone has time to agonise over their choice, surely the most important one they'll make this year, and to discuss their slates in the special channel set aside in the server. Anyway, since this is questions from questions, not shills from shills, although before we get into that, I should mention that uh, Kane has hidden a large number of very amusing Easter eggs on the website, mm. uh, including one involving Chris's face which is very good it always very do. good as always do there's not much that can happen to my face anymore that would surprise me <laughs> <laughs> anyway here's your rights since this is questions from questions not shills from shills I offer the following question what was your gun of the year mine was definitely sweet business Destiny 2 is a game primarily about punching and with 14,000 milli kills under my belt my passion for pugilism is unmatched I punched captains and wizards when killing Nurabath on Mars 
his names mean nothing to me. I had to had to do a little hop before each punch in order to reach his ugly ogre face. Brackian was too tall for even this, so I avenged Ash's lost arm by using mine to deliver a brutal jackhammer strikes to the towering Vex's chrome robo dick. <laughs> My current goal is to land a melee final blow on Zol, Will of the Thousands. It's a big snake. <laughs> But it requires careful timing and a party willing to stand back and let me end the fight with one fisted worm punch. <laughs> but while the way of the closed fist is unquestionably the correct way to play Destiny, having held sweet business in my open palm, I know there's an alternative. And that alternative, I, I tell that's an extra pun, but I don't know why. I know there's an alternative, and that alternative is to infinitely shoot a minigun at everything with a health bar while cackling like a lunatic, finger never leaving the trigger. What a gun! Regards, Kane. That is a... That's something. (laughs) Well, like I said, I've gone off shooters, so uh, I'm Hmm, sort of avoided. Gun of the year. Might be uh, another Destiny 2 one, which is called the Huckleberry, which is a submachine gun. And uh, if you kill someone while you're shooting, it automatically reloads the clip and it fires about 100 bullets a second or something stupid. Um, but it's got a, a, a skin where it changes the, um, the clip, which is visible on the top of the weapon to make it look like a giant drill bit so that when you fire, it sort of drills endlessly towards the enemy. And it's a, a beautiful piece of gun design that is extremely satisfying. Mm. It's very, very good. I'm struggling to think of an example that isn't Destiny. Yeah, Destiny has the, guns. the gun game I gunned the most in. What other games were there, or are there, that have guns in them? There's lots, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say Ariana's Vow. I'm going to go with Destiny. I'm going to mm. say Ariana's Vow because... That was the only game with lots of different kinds of guns yeah. in yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, there were some cons this year, but all those guns are the same gun, really. Just, yeah, it's yeah. an MP5, right? Yeah, a big, yes. long MP5, short MP5, slow mm. MP5. Fast MP5. Quite Sniper like, uh, MP5. Yeah. Quite like controls. Bolt loaded MP5. Whatever. Mm. You got controls modular weapon. I quite like oh, the shotgun yeah. variety of that. Or the, as a gun, also the visual design, the kind of reconfiguring was quite nice. Mm. Yeah, those were nice guns. Mm. Boring mm. game. <laughs> I thought it was right. Sorry. Um, I would say Ariana's are only because the construct, there's a structure of a, uh, achievement or slash quest slash upgrade thing, uh, when the last season of Destiny launched that involved you having to do basically about 100 activities with that weapon which meant they basically never left the power weapon slot it's a pistol it's also a sniper rifle in and of itself i found it initially like fine but because i had to use it eventually it became somehow part of like the default rhythm of destiny Hmm. and ever since that quest was complete and my power weapon slot was freed up my brain has never managed to kind of like correct the groove (laughs) that gun left in me like i am the chair (laughs) and the gun's ass has engraved itself in me. Hang on, what what's that t- even a reference to? Like sitting, you know, when you sit on a sofa for long enough and you kind of... Oh, I see. No, right. right, yeah. Like, like guns do. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I am the seat on which this gun resides and I can only ever think of my power weapon as a, um, a sniper pistol mm. now. It's not a good story, but it's the one I chose to tell. <laughs> did, did it, did, and you've played Red Dead Redemption, right, Tom? Oh, yes. Did you understand how the guns worked in that? No. Sometimes they just sometimes they, out of your... they wouldn't fire, and sometimes yeah. you would reload when you press the fire button. Yeah, and so it, sometimes they didn't. At the all. bolt action ones, like some some of the varieties of them seem to auto <laughs> like your character would seem to auto reload reload, reload them after each shot. Yeah, <laughs> but sometimes you press fire, and that would be. Like I'm a not drinking command. control unit. Has gone rogue. <laughs> I'm malfunctioning. I'm malfunctioning. <laughs> 
um, yeah, there's loads of weird stuff with guns in that game. There's, when no, they're I, on your person or not on your person. When oh god, yeah. When they're in your horse or not in your horse. Oh, stop putting them on my horse. Yeah, I want to take them off the horse. Just, Every time I get off a horse, I, I want, want to have guns. my gun with me. Yeah. Obviously. Uh, yeah, in the fucking Wild West. Come on. Actually, you reminded me of something. I did play a bunch of Hunt Showdown last year. Oh yeah, and that has real good. Like, I'm I'm a big fan of lever action rifles in any in any kind of context. They're just satisfying. Again, big stapler. It's good. Um, <laughs> but um, that my experience of that game is exclusively appreciating the feel and the kind of mechanical heft of each firearm. Crawling through a bush for half an hour. Getting into a situation where I've either found another player or a crucial monster or something. I need to shoot them. Firing the gun. Missing. And then dying immediately. <laughs> and that, and so in a way, it's not gun of the year in the sense that, uh, I had a good time firing it repeatedly and successfully. It's gun like, wow, bang, crack, kachunk, felt mm. great. Mm. I've lost. Like, <laughs> like I've, I don't think I've ever actually hit anything in that game. And that is maybe a, it's unique in that regard. <laughs> mm. We should play that. We should actually. I, actually I, I really don't want to, but Alex has uh, bullied me into it more or less. So we should play it. We should play it. I'd like to play it with like open voice comms, which I think is how it's supposed to be played. People oh, play yeah. it like connected on Discord, like cowards. Mm. Mm. Like, no, that's that's intended so that you're crawling through the bush and you hear someone else go like just talking about, you know, fucking the weather or <laughs> the news or something. And yeah, then yeah. you get murdered. It's good. Mm. That's it for questions. Is it? Mm, that means you have to do the outro now. Okay. Chris. That's fine. Question, so I thought you might do the outro, but no. Whatever. If you'd like to send us a question for a future episode of the podcast, you can do so by emailing us at questions in com. You can also tweet the podcast and only the podcast at crate and crowbar. We tweet at least once a week, maybe. Hmm. If you'd like to find us on YouTube where we post videos of the podcast, I guess, you can find that at youtube.com forward slash crate and crowbar. And the community typically resides on Discord, the link for which is on our website at creightoncrowbar.com. Of course, none of this is possible without the support of our Patreon backers. Thank you to each and every one of you. Yeah, you. You know who you are. Anyway, if you'd like to become that person who knows who they are, you can do so by visiting (laughs) (laughs) um, patreon.com forward slash crowbar. Now, a little change of pace. I am (laughs) Chris Thurston. That's my name. Uh, You know, Christopher, if you're nasty. Marsh? I've been and will hopefully continue to be for at least a a short time. Marsh Davis. And I remain Tom Senior. Thanks Thanks for listening, everybody. Love you. Bye. I was Fuck right. Then. I was right. I was right, and you were wrong. I was. I was. Hi, I owe an apology to Marsh, and I just <laughs> want to take this moment to fully articulate my failings. <laughs> and I'm back. <laughs>